Good morning, you beautiful fuckers. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Tuesday, May 16th. Time for the Power Hour. We are here live. Phone lines are open. Jump in and join us. 855-950-3835. Jump in quick. The calls will uh, start to fill up. They always do. We're going to hear from the team from Pittsburgh Power. See what's on their mind this week. They're here to do the heavy lifting for us. And then we'll get to your calls and questions. So line them up. Uh, looks a little different today. Looks like we've got everybody on the same line. So I'm just going to open that line and you guys can start talking over each other. Bruce, good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Uh, as always, it's our pleasure to be on with you. Great to have you here. What's uh, what's new and exciting in your world today? Well, in the last night after quitting, I was still here at 5 o'clock, but the switchboard, it'll give me two rings, and I grabbed two calls in a row from Corey Garrison and a Mike Garrison, one from Garden City, Kansas, and the other one from Prince George, British Columbia. Can you imagine how I had people with the same last name? Yeah, that's strange. That would be confusing for me. Yeah, I was a little surprised. Okay, so Brian Moan, our shop foreman, and Brian's been with us 37 years. He's taken a lot of the calls in Pete's absence right now. And he has the same thing he said when people call and they want to talk about their engine. They, a lot of them don't know what engine they have, whether it's a 6NZ cat or a uh, 871 ISX or a uh, 625 CPL big cam. So uh, it's nice when people call and say, I have this engine and the specific what engine they have. They want to talk about gearing. We need to know tire size. We need to know what gears you have. Not I think I have, but this is what I have. And if you want to know what transmission gears, just call the truck dealership especially where you bought it, but if not, call any truck dealership. It's Freightliner, call Freightliner. With the last six or eight of your VIN, chances are they can tell you what you have. I had one young man, he wanted to talk all about gearing and transmissions, but he didn't know what he had. So I gave him a homework assignment. Call your dealer, find out exactly what transmission, and find out what the overdrive ratio is in top gear, and find out your rear gears, and call me in the morning. Never called. <laughs> he failed. His, maybe the dog ate his homework. Well, you know, um, years ago, I used to make all those phone calls and look everything up and don't have the time to do that now. But as you're going down the highway, it's pretty easy to call the dealership and ask what your gear ratio is and what the final drive is in your transmission. You know, don't we, tell me you have 411 gear because we know that doesn't work. We have some places in our fuel gauges app to record that stuff because, you know, we want as much information on each truck as we can get. But I'm thinking about it now. I think if we made that, if we made some changes to that, make it a form itself in the app and then put in some of those hints on how you get all that. And then we could mm -hmm. drop everybody a reminder once, you know, now and then to fill that in. Maybe we'll do that. Okay. Uh, so basically, that's what I have now. I'll back through my notes and see if anything's out. Um, Got it all? Did we lose it? Yep. Okay. 
All right. So, uh, Eric, you're next up on the board. Good morning. How are you? Uh-oh. Oh, you did. Can you hear me? Yeah. Now we hear you. Okay. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good. What's on your mind this week? Uh, just I want to touch base on some of the oil sampling results. Um, a lot of people are, are confused on how the sampling results are processed. They think that we're like the the gurus for everything. We do the lab analysis, everything here. We are the, the retailer, and Polaris Laboratories would do the actual testing and results stuff. Their computer system is theirs. Ours is ours. Um, so if somebody gets a sample, like I've had a couple guys lately that they either changed their business name by like a, a period, a dot, a space or something like that, and Polaris had made a whole new account for them. All you have to do is call the 800 number and say, hey, combine my results. They put them all in. So it's easier to read the history that way. Um, the other thing is if you lose your oil sample, like if, if FedEx or UPS or anybody lose it, FedEx actually in this case, if they lose your sample in transit, if it's been within the last 90 days, call me. I can actually look it up through our shipping department. We get a tracking number and try to run a trace for you. But if it's more than 90 days, unfortunately, I can't look it up past that. But I can try to help you if you sometimes. Good advice. We, we've been dealing with that for years as well. And we, we have an account with Polaris that allows, allows us to go in and see uh, accounts that have been run through us. And we've, you know, spent time doing the same thing. Like you said, you make one change and all of a sudden you have two accounts. Then we can't see the history. And history is important. One oil sample is okay. Five oil samples is good. Ten oil samples is excellent. I mean, the more samples I can see, the more patterns we can pick out and we can catch things even earlier. Exactly. I just talked to a guy, it was last week now, he had 47 samples in his history. Yeah. I praised the guy. Thank <laughs> yeah. We were talking about some issues from like a year or two ago. I see it in the samples and I was explaining to him you know, what we were looking for, how we found it. It was just a really good learning tool to have. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So good advice. The other thing, you know, I keep asking Polaris, they will not make a single change to that form. And that form sucks. Really. I wish they would just start over and let us help them design that thing because it is awful. And I wish they would just put a, a place for the year. The year matters. An 03 yeah. ISX is way different than a 13 ISX. And and we don't know that. When you look at it, all it says is ISX. You have no idea what year we're looking at. And it would be so simple if they would just put that on the form. The other thing I wish they would do, honestly, I've asked them a thousand times. Nobody I've talked to ever uses this. That section on the oil sample, the top right, where it's additive metals, Get rid of that whole section. It is nothing but confusing. And in 20 years of analyzing oil samples, I've never used it once. Exactly. And, and I've asked them many, many times too, can we just change the verbiage? A lot of people get confused. Component time versus the miles on the engine versus the miles on the unit. Oh. It's just it's very, all they put would be miles on oil, miles on the engine. And and they could even put a little sentence in because miles on engine, we reset with a major overhaul. Correct. Well, I guess if they did other sampling besides just engine, like if they did, you know, transmission or differential gear sampling or oil sampling, then component makes more sense. 
You know what I mean? So they probably just made one one card that's good for everything. Wait, it's kind of late. They actually do. That was their behind that is because they do sample everything. Right. But two lines up, they have boxes for transmission, right. rear different. Right. <laughs> so, well, they, uh, Leroy, you're absolutely right. They, they tried to make one form multi-purpose and it confuses the hell out of everybody. And we spend, I spend more time on some samples correcting all that stuff than I do analyzing the sample. Exactly. Yeah. I do too. So yeah, they I'd, probably had congressman who has a degree in law made that form. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's easy to complicate something. It takes real talent to make something simple and clear. And this form and the report needs help. Like I said, I, I haven't found anybody that uses the additive metal section ever. And yet it generates all kinds of questions because you get weird readings up there. I, I, I'm going to get personal here for a second. I have two oh, boys. Oh, boy. Yeah, not like that. <laughs> but I have two boys, and my oldest is 14. And we're at the discussion age now. What are you going to do for a living? What do you, what do you want to be in life? And one of the main things is engineer. So don't take this the wrong way here, Leroy. But I told him, no matter what field of engineering you go in, you must do a blue-collar job for at least six months to 12 months in that field so that you know what it's like on the other end of the wrench. You know, I hear a lot of times it looks good on paper, but when you get in there to actually do it or change it and get your own hands dirty, you have a whole different perspective on, on how it should be. And, and I think maybe more people should get their hands dirty and, and figure out how this stuff works. And I think we're reaching out to a lot of customers that actually do that. The more I talk to people on the phone and we get more feedback from the oil samples, they're learning and it's just making them a better living. All around, financially and everywhere in the trucking industry. Absolutely. I agree with that. And anybody who's turned a wrench on anything knows that you start swearing at engineers pretty early in your career of turning wrenches. I saw one the other day. It's just a, a video. We've all seen crazy examples of this. I remember um, in high school, I had a friend that had a Mustang Cobra two. It would have been a 70s model. Forget exactly which yeah, year, 70s. but the little Mustang II with the Cobra had a 302 V8 in it. You had to unbolt two motor mounts and jack the motor up at an angle to get that spark plug out of the right rear. And that was back when you changed spark plugs pretty often. What a total pain in the ass that was. I saw one a video the <laughs> other day, though. There was a car, when you took the drain plug out for the oil, the flow of the oil landed right on, I think it was the tie rod end and just yeah, splashed everywhere. Of, I, yeah. My, my dad had an international scout dealership for 18 years. We sold them from start to finish, basically. And I remember my grandfather, which would be my dad's father-in-law at the time, had bought a brand new one and went to change the oil. And the oil filter was right up against the inner fender well. And he got mad and actually cut a hole in his fender and put a fuel door. So when he went to change the oil, he would just, like you were filling up a gas tank, you would open the fuel door and you would act. <laughs> good, good idea. My dad. Yeah. Well, my dad was mortified. He was brand new Scout, had like maybe 200 miles on it. That was blasphemy to him, to anybody sec you know, uh, desecrate a brand new international Scout. But yeah. People do ingenious. On my 2014 half-ton Ram with the Hemi. The oil filter, and it's four-wheel drive, the oil filter is right above the axle. 
and it's really hard to get to. And when you take it loose and bring it down, I mean, you have oil everywhere. So you have to get out your can of brake clean, and now it's all over the garage floor. Yeah. yeah. So, Bruce, let me give you the exact opposite of that. My Toyota FJ Cruiser, 07, you open the hood and right there near the front at the top is the oil filter sticking up with a nice catch basin all around it. So the oil drains down to one spot, easy to clean up if you spill anything. You could change a filter on that thing in 30 seconds. Audis have that and so do Volvo's. It's so nice. Easiest car I've ever had to change oil was a 96 Saab Arrow. Um, the filter was underneath, but it was right uh, not far from the drain plug. And you could drain the oil and the oil pan both at the same time in your catch pan. Nice. But, yeah. You Stuff know, like that. Semi trucks, for guys that still do it themselves, we have a screw in plug that's spring loaded. And as you screw the hose on it, it opens that up. So it's not sitting there open when well, it has a cap with an O-ring that you screw on. And you will, you can change oil and then pull it down if you're draining it into a five-gallon bucket. You just screw the drain hose back out of it. It closes the valve. And then you change buckets and screw it back in. It is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen for changing oil. That's nice. And they're... they're Five dollars or something like that. Yeah, and, and they don't. What um, what setup are you guys on today? As far as audio, are we using mics, headsets, phones? What's? Uh, we're all the, three. The headset that we normally use. We're all three in my office with the headsets. Yeah, they sound good. I that's what I thought because of the audio, but it's like there's some weird. Let me think if there's any setting on the board that would cause this. I'm trying to remember um, which board I gave you guys. It, it's like clipping just the last couple seconds of your audio, and sometimes it's hard to figure out the last word you say. I'm moving. I'm moving knobs. I don't know what any of them do, but I'm moving them. Okay. <laughs> the just light keep, gets brighter. Just keep moving them. Then. Yeah. All right. I'm moving. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll see. That does sound a little better. I don't know what happened, but we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, I had a thought, and I totally lost it. So. Um, Leroy, was there anything on your mind today? Yeah, I have a topic. So, um, I posted on trucking tribe that I was looking for topics for the show. And if anyone had any questions, I'd answer them here. So one of the tribe members, his name is Kevin O'Sullivan posted currently driving a 2009 Western star with the cat SDP. I believe it's known as currently, if you are, uh, Curious if you know the workings of this engine and how the emission system works. It looks like it gets the exhaust gas for circulation from the back of the DPF. Is this correct? And would that mean less that is in going in the engine, it being that it's taken from the rear of the DPF? And yeah, so I'm going to answer that here. That was called the ARV head, wasn't it? No. So, no. okay. We're going to go through explanation time. I'm going to try to make this easy because for <laughs> some reason, CAT, I, I don't know... What happened, there was such a misstep with the SDP as far as engineering goes. They tried to recreate everything for, for really no reason. Uh, how familiar are you with the SDP, Kevin? I, I know the basic general stuff, not anything real specific. Okay, so if you have an MXS and XS, that's your standard Acer twin turbo engine with the IVAs, et cetera, right? 
So they have that engine. CAT has that engine. And now new emission standards come out, and they say we need to put a DPF on it to load the particulate matter, and we also need to reduce the NOx up. So most other manufacturers put EGR on and then a DOC and DPF. That sort of cleared up the issue in 2010, like the ISX-871. Um, the DDEC-6. The DDEC-6, same thing. Yeah. So CAT goes in an entirely different direction. They're just like, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to do something completely different. So they take their A3rd engine, and they put a DPF on it, just a DPF. And this is where things start to go sideways. So in a typical regen system, you have a DOC DPF. The DOC is used to make heat for the DPF. When you spray a little bit of fuel on the face of the DPF, it creates the heat for the DPF to burn the soot off. Cat's like, how about we build a flamethrower instead? And that's the ARD, the after treatment regeneration device. So there's a piece on the back of the turbo called the ARD head. It has fuel injectors and a spark plug. And you have a coil on the side of the block that the ECM controls. So they literally built a flamethrower that shoots flames down <laughs> down the, the exhaust pipe into the DPF nice. to burn it off. So as you can imagine, you get fuel from your gear pump. That fuel goes over to the ARD head and you have two injectors there. They spray fuel and there's a spark plug in there that ignites the fuel. And whoosh, nice. As you can imagine, things start to go wrong there. Because I think... <laughs> So the ARD head, some guy, Jared was telling me was in here. He put like 38 of them on. Oh, my word. Within like a few years. Hey. Built a flamethrower. I mean, <laughs> things are going to get hot, melt, get ruined, plug up with soot. <laughs> I don't know hey, what they're thinking. I'm thinking. Hey, Leroy. Like I can. Yeah. You know what I get out of this story? What? I, I'm going to go to the truck stop and go sit at the liar's counter and start talking real loud about how I just spent two and a half hours trying to change the spark plug on my truck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, here's a fun one. If anybody knows any other diesel engines that come with spark plugs and coil packs, well, not a coil pack, a coil, coil. Let, call in and let us know because I think yeah. that's the only one. I'm yeah, thinking the, got a pillar engineer this was a street rotter. He had a lead sled and he had flamethrowers out of his exhaust. <laughs> yes. Those guys always used to put the spark plugs in there, run their carburetor real rich. And then the gentleman you met this morning has one, Adam Hayden. He has a lead sled with flamethrowers out the back. He's got it tuned so perfect that he can walk away at idle and it just like boils flames out like a small burning fire. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So back to the STP. Now here's the interesting part about the ARD before I move on. So rather than using a DOC, they use the ARD to create the heat, right? Mm -hmm. In 2007, when the MXS and NXS Acer were out, you remember what they had in the exhaust? Catalytic. Cat yeah. Catalytic. They converter. had a DOC. They did. Yeah. Another, another basically name for catalytic converter is DOC. Oh. So they took the DOC out. They already had one. They could have just put a DPF behind it and then just you'd use a seventh injector like everybody else. But they're like, no, we'll take the DOC out and put a flamethrower in instead. That sounds like fun. <laughs> right. So that's sort of the ugly part of the SDP. Now the answer to Kevin's question about the EGR part, they also did that different. So typically in an EGR system, it's called like a high pressure loop. High pressure as in you take the exhaust pressure that's in the manifold before the turbo, which is usually pretty high. And if you have a VGT turbo, you can choke it off, make it even higher. Mm -hmm. And the way that pressure moves or air moves is when you have a high pressure area and a low pressure area, the high moves to the low. That's how you get flow. That's how the wind works. That's how just nature works, right? So you build up a bunch of pressure in the exhaust manifold, and then you move that over. You go through an EGR cooler and then into the intake. That's how you would typically do it, but not cat. So cat's like, well, the downside to doing the high-pressure EGR, the way everybody else does it, is 
there's a lot of soot there. The engine has to eat its own garbage. Explicit. <laughs> <laughs> and Cat doesn't want to do that. And plus, it puts extra strain on the cooling system because you have to have an AGR cooler that's cooling 1,200 plus degree air. You know, not all the time, but that's a lot for the EGR cooler and the cooling system to have to take. You have to put a bigger radiator in, yada, yada, yada. You have to build a beefier cooling system. They actually had a problem with the heating, and that's where they designed those cups on their exhaust manifold gaskets, those stainless steel cups that go up inside the cylinder head on the exhaust chamber. That was meant to insulate number one cylinder because those A-certs ran so hot that they have an exhaust passage right beside the water coolant passage. It was heating up the water. And that's why they designed those stainless steel cups, too. So that's been a heat problem for since the actual invention of the Acer, actually. Well, I'm saying that the heating issue is on like a regular, like ISX871 or some standard okay. DDAC5 EGR system. So Kat's like, well, if we pull it from behind the DPF, being it's after the DPF, we have filtered exhaust gas. We need exhaust gas to run through the engine to make lower knock, right? So we'll grab it from the back of the DPF where it's clean. So there's a tube literally behind the DPF, and there those like inch and a half pipes that go all the way up. They go through a cooler, but versus their CGI cooler um, only has to cool like 500 degree air versus like 1200, right? So the tubes go through the CGI cooler and then into, it looks like a tractor flap that's inside <laughs> of the, um, the intake piping before the turbo. So you have your air cleaners, you have intake piping that go into the, the compressor, mm-hmm. right? And normally just breathe fresh air through the air cleaner. Mm-hmm. Well, the other option with the little tractor flap that the ECM controls is you get some of that um, exhaust gas that's clean. And this system is called CGI. That's the clean gas induction. So there's a little bit of positive pressure behind the DPF with the exhaust gas over the atmosphere, right? And then you also have a little bit of a vacuum effect going on at the face, right? Mm-hmm. With the turbo sucking in. So when they open that valve, you get a little bit of positive pressure from behind the DPF that drives the clean exhaust gas, and then you have a little bit of vacuum that pulls it in as well. So that's where they get their quote-unquote EGR from, is the clean gas behind the DPF. That's okay until you start to have issues. One of the issues that CAD had was the exhaust that comes from behind the DPF isn't always perfectly clean, especially if you have a cracked DPF or something. Because now you're just straight breathing sooty exhaust. And it, it not only goes through the face of the turbo, it goes through the face of the other turbo and into the charge air cooler, which they had issues with it being too small of, you know, narrow passageways, the charge air cooler will plug up, things just go horribly wrong, right? That's one issue. The other issue, it was never going to work long term as an emission solution, because when you're trying to like basically sip exhaust gas from behind the DPF at idle or some low load situations, there's just not enough pressure there to drive it. There's just not enough EGR there to lower the NOx to what they needed it to be. So the whole system just was never going to work. I think they squeaked by with the CGI and their IVAs and the rate shaping of the injectors and everything like that. But the system was just over-engineered, complicated, just it didn't work. It was a good idea, but just wasn't going to work. Oh, it did it didn't, uh, it actually put them out of the truck engine business for the U.S. So, you know, do you think they may have even thought of that? Like they saw the writing on the wall, you know, we're just going to buy our time just to get past this first level of tier four till we're out of the on-road equipment. They uh, let their pride stand in their way and they didn't want to adopt the Cummins EGR systems. 
problem. Yeah, they've always gone a different way. Even in 03, when the EGR mm-hmm. came out, they wouldn't go with a BG Turbo and EGR mm-hmm. valve and cooler. They had to try the Acer uh, technology. Well, they, in 03, they went with the bridge. Yep. And they paid a lot of money per engine. It's a shame because, right. you know, the 6NZ was such a... And, and the older 3406Es and Bs and were all great engines. They were. Even you the know. A-certs are awesome, too. And when you buy, like, a 6NZ crate engine for your older truck now, it's actually an A-cert block. Oh, okay. They really like those. The A-cert blocks are the strongest block Caterpillar ever manufactured. Okay. Yeah, so the, the SCP overall is that much different from your standard A-cert besides the flamethrower and the weird tractor flap sucking <laughs> EGR thing. <laughs> your scientific terminology is just on point today <laughs> yeah. out of control. Yeah, it is. Those real technical um, terms. You know, if you look at the history of emissions, I, I tend to be a contrarian. I usually don't do what the rest of the crowd is doing, but that did not work out well for the two OEMs that tried it. Cat tried to go their way with ACERT, and then International tried to go their way with enhanced EGR, and both of them failed miserably. Right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's definitely disadvantages to the standard EGR system, but it still works better than the other one. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, what do you say we take some phone calls? I'm ready. Sounds good. Let's do that. Let's go to South Carolina to get started. Howdy. Howdy. So I've already talked to Leroy today, so I had to get my tools out this morning. So I'll give us a brief rundown so everyone else knows what happened. So Friday night when I'm on my way home, I get this bus and it was like an electrical, like someone was turned the key off. So Saturday, I unplugged my e-log and hooked up the scan gauge, fired the truck up and I only had 12 and a half volts, let it sit there for a while and it came up. The 13.4. As soon as I turned the lights on, it fell in the basement. So I went, got a new alternator put on. I've only had two and 1.2 million miles. So I thought, well, time to replace it. So then I leave home Sunday, 610 miles, no problems. Get loaded yesterday, head east, cross I 20, and over there in McCullough, Alabama, when I leave there, I got this problem. And it's like, the key getting turned on and off, missing real bad. And then it went away. And then going through the middle of Atlanta, it came back again. So I'm cruising along through the middle of Atlanta on the pedal, and I ease off to go around one of the bends, and I put my foot down, and it's like, oh, nobody home. So I hit the resume on the cruise control, way it went. So it makes it really challenging to drive when you only got cruise control and no accelerator pedal. So... <laughs> Yeah, because if you get down too slow, the cruise control won't resume. So, and then the the D, the light on the DEF for usually comes on at an eighth of a tank, warning you that you're low on DEF. Well, it, I'm just below a quarter of a tank, and the red light comes on, and I say, "Well, I'll stop and put some DEF in." I did that, and then I get rolling. Well, it cooperated to get me up to speed, and then I get over here to South Carolina. And I parked outside the Peterbilt dealer. And uh, I go in there this morning after talking to Leroy and Eric. And it's like, okay, I need a throttle position sensor because that was one of the codes that had come up. So the guy looks it up and I said, let me guess, it's $869. And he says, "Um, you can't buy the sensor alone. You've got to buy the complete assembly, the pedal and everything. 
Well, he gave me a discount on it. It was 1569 but So I went out, got my tools out, got my hands dirty, put the new paddle in. Well, that solved that problem. But um, all the emission codes that popped up, they're still there. But um, will I go into D-rate or you just crystal ball is all foggy and you know about as much as I do? Um, based on the codes that you had this morning, it will eventually derate if the def pump comes, doesn't come back alive. So I guess for context, that who are those that don't know, he had like four or five DEF codes, and they all sounded re- related. So one code said the def pump's not priming, right? And then there was another code that said that there's low def pressure. Well, that makes sense if the def pump doesn't prime. And then the next one said that the SCR wasn't converting so well. Well, that makes sense because there's no def pressure, right? And then the next one was the knock sensor was like, hey, I got a weird reading. Well, that makes sense because the SCR is not working because the depth pressure is not there. So they were all sort of related. So like I said, there's something going on with the depth pump or it's plugged or a line or some sort of issue, but it will eventually derate most likely in four to five hours. Oh, what fun. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, at least I got a, at least I have a throttle pedal now, though. So, but <laughs> at least you can drive five miles an hour with your throttle pedal. <laughs> Because crew's yeah, only yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, it won't resume. Yeah, so we're, we're quite the optimist, Paul. <laughs> What's that? I said we're just quite the optimist today. We're just trying to look at that silver lining. Yeah, I have a throttle pedal now. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, if you if you don't completely stop, even if the the truck is fully upset, it won't put you at five miles an hour. It's not until it thinks you've entered safe harbor mode, as the ECM yeah. calls it. So once it thinks that you've pulled over or you've got to a, a nice place to stop, then it goes into five mile an hour D-rate. But if you were just okay. hypothetically driving on a road 70 miles an hour, you could drive there almost infinitely, you know, until you yeah. ran out of fuel or something. But yeah, it won't stop you in the middle of the road. Wait. Well, Paul, I can tell you this winter I was on a guy's boat and it lost the steering. It was outboards and their electric steering, Yamaha outboards, all Yamaha controls. And yep. so we made some phone calls. I said, well, just use your bow thruster and drive it that way. And uh, you know how hard it is to get into some tight p- ports when you don't have, can't steer a boat. And oh, yeah. You're forward yep. and reverse and stuff. So, yeah, electric steering. So, and this was a new boat. It had like 20 hours on it when that steering failed. So, well, but at least you had your steering wheel. Hopefully we never go to electric steering on vehicles. Yeah, hope not. Yeah, I, I guarantee that somebody is already thinking about it. So, yeah. I'm sure there already is electric steering. There is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's drive-by wire Actually, steering. It. Yeah. Didn't didn't Freightliner Cascadia put something like that out? Weren't they thinking about doing something like that? Maybe on their all-electric model, but I don't think anything on the road has that. Yeah. Time will tell. So, yeah. So at least I have a throttle pedal, so I got one one problem out of the way. So I'll go see if I can get empty. So. I guess 1.2 million miles, stuff will wear out a little bit. So. There you go. They tend to. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll carry on. Thanks. All right. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Ohio. Roy, welcome to the program. Uh, good morning. Uh, I have a 1997 FLD with a Series 60. Uh, in the morning, I set my cruise at 65. And it will go up three or four miles an hour and then slow down three or four miles an hour for about a half an hour. And then it levels out and, and it's good the rest of the day. But it drives me nuts 
with uh, going up and down. And it's not that great for fuel. <laughs> no. Hey, well, I, uh, let me jump in here real quick. And it was just a weird timing thing. I was scrolling through news and I just saw we were talking about electronic steering or electric steering or I, I just am looking at a headline. Freightliner Western Star Trucks recall electronic stability control issue. And it says that um, if the trucks have electronic stability control, they may understeer during a J turn. What is electronic stability control? Um, like, I think it has like rollover protection, like it has yaw sensors and stuff like that to okay. uh, keep the truck from rolling. It starts to detect that it can try to play with the brakes and stuff like that. Got it. Okay. I think that's what you can. Yeah. I just thought that was interesting as we're kind of down there in the same part as the steering and, uh, we do have some electronics I know going on up there. Steering angle so they know like your steering input. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's a Leroy, what do you think about this cruise control? So, well, has it always done this, or did it just start doing this? Uh, it's been doing it for a couple months now. And it didn't previously do that. No. And did you have it the ECM looked at at all during that time, as far as programmed or anything like that? No. Uh, it's been probably a, a, a year ago that. You guys reprogrammed the ECM. Okay. But since then, it hasn't done anything. It just started doing this. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Leroy, mm -hmm. could this have a D-deck? It should be a D-deck 3. But yes, sir. A D-deck 4 ECM and the battery be going. Hey, guys. Um, hold on. We've uh, developed an audio issue over here, and nobody can hear you. And I'm trying to figure out why not. Uh and if it lower droops at the 58 or two miles an hour, then it could go to 58. Well, you said it's done it after it's been programmed, so it's not that. So it's either the tone wheel itself is loose, the sensor, wiring, or ECM. Okay. When we get back on the air, let's explain what the tone wheel is, because I'd like to know what it is. Well, if you guys can hear me now, go ahead and explain that, because I think I got everything back. Are we all back now? Yeah. So go ahead and what look. Is, oh. So I guess um, just I'll back up a little bit for context. I don't know if everyone heard that. He had this cruise control issue where it seems to lead or lag, like the it drifts from what it's set to. So I'm saying the first thing that we kind of ruled out already was the cruise control droop, upper and lower droop, which is just a setting in the ECM, which allows the cruise just to go a little bit above or a little bit below. The next thing would be the tone wheel is either loose the sensor is loose in its housing or the sensor is bad. The wiring to the ECM has an issue or the ECM itself is causing the issue. Now a tone wheel, it basically looks like a gear that goes on the outside of a, a shaft or it can be on a gear and it rotates with something. Uh, for instance, like the tone wheel on a, a crankshaft. So you have a gear that hangs off the front of the crankshaft that has all these little teeth on it, right? So it's just... Um, it just kind of looks like a gear, right? It has like a little yep. notch, like little square notches. And on, in the case of a crankshaft, there's one missing, but we won't go from that. <laughs> so as, as this rotates, it passes by a magnetic sensor, and it's called an induction sensor, right? It's basically a little two-wire sensor with, with like a magnet on the end. And when you pass a piece of metal, the tooth pretty close by that magnet 
then the small gap there makes a little bit of a magnetic field, which generates a little bit of electrical signal. Because you, if you have a magnetic field, you have an electric field in its perpendicular way, but we're not going to go about that. <laughs> anyway, so as the teeth pass by the sensor, it makes a little bit of electrical voltage, and then the ECM sees that. So as it spins, you get like sort of like a, a tone, right? A tone is just a, a frequency of sort of, maybe you think of it as like claps, like, you know, and then the faster it goes, the faster it claps, right? So that's how you can get a speed number is based on the time between claps. The shorter it is, the faster it's going. And the longer between claps, the slower it's going. So the ECM sort of sees those electrical pulses, measures the time between them, and then can calculate a speed based off that. And we've caught a couple of these tone rings before. We even yeah. caught one on a crankshaft. I remember on a 12.7, the guy was having a timing reference with so no start issue. And it was a loose tone ring on a crank. But yeah. This one you're talking about, where's it located? Either behind the like transmission, like in the tail shaft parts or like in the, the rear diff. Okay. We actually, speaking of funny tone wheel stories, we had an 870 a long time ago that had an intermittent like engine speed signal and it would make his tack jump around. So, I mean, we put new sensors on, we checked it, checked the wiring, put a new ECM on. I'm like, that's sort of the three things it can be. Because the tone, the sensor doesn't move away from the gear, right? That's, a, that's it's in a fixed position. You yeah, bolt it to the block, preset it's a distance. fixed distance away. Yep. So I'm like, there's three pieces of this puzzle. This is how I like diagnose everything. I break down the pieces. I'm like, it's either this, this, or this. So I'm like, it's either the uh, crankshaft sensor, the wiring, or the ECM. We replaced all of them and it still did it. So I put an oscilloscope on there, which measures the electrical signals, and you can view it graphically, right? So instead of having little square pulses, which would represent the teeth, right? You would see a low and then it would go high and then low again. It would make a little square on your screen. It would make like a shark fin. And what had happened was when we tore the front cover off, there was like a, a cam bolt or something that broke up top and a piece of metal fell down and w was resting against the tone wheel and chewed a corner of it off. So like as that sensor would pass by, it only see a little bit of it. Oh, and it ended up just like it shark finned the uh, um, the tone wheel, and it also made a shark fin electrical signal, and that's how we ended up seeing it. Interesting, yeah. But in your case, the cruise control issue, if it leads or lags, like if the tone wheel is loose, so at some point it's spinning the same speed as the the drive shaft, right? And that's like let's say whatever speed that is at 60 miles an hour. If it is loose, it'll start to slow down, right? The, the tone wheel on the shaft, the shaft is spinning faster than the tone wheel because it's loose. And then it might lead if it, if it grabs and then accelerates it. I wonder if this is heat related too, because he said it happens only when it's cold out, once the truck gets warmed up and, it, and anything will expand when it gets hot. Makes that could sense. be a distance issue too, because we're talking about a very couple thousand distance between the, the sensor and the tone wheel. Yeah. That'd probably be where I would focus on the first Most time. of the time it's near the, it's at the sensor, the sensor plug or the, it's usually in that tone wheel area. Yeah. You take the sensor out, you can put a screwdriver in there and feel if it's loose. If you put a screwdriver in there, you try to move it back and forth and it doesn't move, then, you know, yeah, that's the tone not ring, tone ring should have zero movement. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. Thanks I, for I the know, call. Some of my critics are probably wondering why I didn't say the Max Molly's catalyst would fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would have. Yeah. I guess I forgot that, yeah. I hey. mean, some people say, Bruce, it fixes everything, but that's how you know you made it social media. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Hey, Bruce, there, there is a way. If you just sit around and sniff the fumes enough, everything seems fixed. 
and then you just <laughs> fly <laughs> off the road. I'm going to talk about one of you, hey, Kevin. I'm going to take a second here or 20 seconds and talk about your monkey brittle. <laughs> okay. Um, I ordered 10, 10 bags from you and my employee, I wasn't here. It came in and whenever I got here, there was three left. And so it disappeared in Pittsburgh power somewhere, but that's okay. So I opened the bag and put it in my desk drawer and boy, was that a mistake because, um, it leaves a taste in your mouth. The only way that you can satisfy that is to eat more monkey brittle. Yes. So I ate a whole bag in one afternoon. (laughs) And I was thinking of, you know, when I had my Kenworth, I had that wooden console between the dash and the shifter and I put food up there. Yeah. If you're going down a highway and you put open a bag of monkey brittle and you put it where you can reach it, it you will, will devour it. it. Yeah, it'll be gone. You you can't stop. Have you tried it with the nut butter yet? No, I'm oh. using the nut butter yeah. on the celery. Yeah, that's good so. too. Try, put a little bit of that cinnamon vanilla nut butter on the monkey brittle, and it's it's game over. Did you try it, Eric? No, I'm mad. How did I miss that? No, it was in the lunchroom. You missed the monkey brittle. I, we had a customer one time sent me, uh, uh, me and Kathy, because we helped them out, a box. Oh, why did I get it? <laughs> we got sent a box of chocolate <laughs> strawberries. And by the time I saw them, there was one left. And I walked in, I saw oh, who got the strawberries? They're like, oh, we don't know. And I looked at the card and it said to Eric. I'm like, oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the boy- it has food that- Hey, for food and they want to get rid of it, just hey, bring it in here. It'll be devoured. Hey, Even Eric. in engineering, we'll <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. Hey, hey Eric, you, anyway. you got to know that this monkey brittle, you've never experienced anything like it. There's nothing else like this on the market. We, uh, that product kind of exists because of us. There's a long story behind it. It, I found it in a local store here. It's made locally here in, in right in the valley in the gorge here. I found it in a local store, tried it, thought this stuff's crazy. There's really three ingredients. It's bananas, nuts, and raisins. That That's all that's in there. Um, so mm. this stuff was amazing. I go back to the store a week later. It's not there anymore. And I checked and I said, what happened to the monkey brittle? And they said the company decided to stop making it. The, just when I find it, a week later, they decide to stop making it. My wife, Lisa, <laughs> bugged them for a year. She sent them an email every week, finally convinced them that if they made a batch, we would buy the whole thing. And we did. And it, when I first tasted it, it was just for ourselves. But when we found out they would do it if we bought the whole batch, I thought, well, let's put it in the store and see what happens. We sold out in like 15 minutes Every time they would make a batch, we would sell out. And they would only make one once in a while when they felt like it. So we couldn't even tell people when it was going to be there. But when it was, so many people had it reserved, it would disappear before we even got it in stock. Finally, they they decided to license the product to somebody here in the Gorge. And they're making it now. And they're getting distribution in Whole Foods and Sprouts and all kinds of other health food stores. We are the online distributor for it. And I, I got to tell you this, as soon as I saw the product, I looked at the ingredients, I tasted it. I thought I know exactly how they make this. They mix it all up. They throw it in the dehydrator, spread out on silicone mats, except that doesn't work. Four days of dehydrating and it would still bend instead of snap. I thought, what am I doing wrong? So we, we know the couple now 
before we could go in and make a batch with them, we had to sign a really strong non-disclosure agreement. This recipe is like, you know, Coca-Cola and Kentucky Fried Chicken. The recipe is very, very restricted. There are only a few people that know how to do it. And I would have never guessed. I would have never figured it out. I'm about to try some now. It really got me intrigued. Oh, it's pretty incredible. Um, I'll bring you some tomorrow. I have uh, two bags left. <laughs> so what I have... Bruce is hoarding. I leave the bag. I, I leave the bag at home, and I put so much in a baggie, and then when it's gone, it's gone. Because if I open the whole bag and put it in the desk, it's just gone. Subconsciously, you're on the phone. You just pick it up and you start to nibble on it. I mean, and it's uh, very, very addictive. It is very good though. So anyway, All right. I just had to tell you that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm sure we'll sell out a monkey brittle today now. So. Um, let's go to <laughs> Iowa. Matt, welcome to the program. Good morning, gentlemen. So, uh, talking about Caterpillar engines, I just have a public service announcement. In Florida, it is Ring Power, or the cat dealers. They quit working on trucks the first of the year. They will not work on a truck at all. Wow. So, if you it, want your that's, that's cat big. engine rebuilt, you have to take it out of the truck and bring it to them. Oh, they'll sell you parts, but they won't work on trucks. Yep, I heard that from one of our older customers, Butch. Wow, I drove by there a couple times this year. That's crazy. Ring power. Yeah, yeah, Ring Power is big yeah, enough. Yeah, right on seventy-five in Lake City, and yeah, I've been paying attention. I think it went into effect either in December or the first of the year, and. I just heard about it like three weeks ago, and for the last three weeks, I've never seen a truck other than one of their lowboy trucks parked in that lot. Is that just ring power, or what about the rest of them? Yes, ring power, to, to my knowledge. Yeah, okay. Interesting. And I thought that the other cat distributors were looking for cat, or truck work, and they were willing to do other things, engines and or transmissions and differentials to fill in for the lack of engine work to keep their mechanics going. Um, I have a friend of mine that uh, bought a, uh, I don't, I think it's a DDAT four in a different truck. He bought had a great relationship with the cat dealer up in Minnesota and they work on his Detroit. Yeah. Or at least they used to, I don't know if he's been in there now in the last year, but so when yeah, times they, get tough, work is work. Yep, exactly. So um, I'd like to expand a little bit. Eric, you were talking about uh, your son and engineering and all that. Uh, we have a 18-year-old son who's graduating high school here in a couple of weeks. And in August, he is going to uh, North Dakota State in Fargo for mechanical engineering. Good. Cool. Nice. Yeah. So. Um, and he's already technically been working in the field for two going on three years. He started out cutting grass for a local place, just a small engineering, you know, subcontractor, but they do a lot of work for Polaris and Minnesota. We got Polaris and Articat are both corporated there. Uh, you might want to say Polaris snowmobiles because we've been talking yep, about snowmobiles, ATVs. Yep. They do a lot of that. And that's, that's what he wants. That's awesome. I'm glad that he's getting his hands dirty too, because that'll carry over yep. when he starts to design things. 
Yep. So I guess the uh, question, and maybe Leroy has more insight on this, is since that's mechanical engineering is going to be his major, and he really has no interest in anything else, any recommendations for something he should be studying to go along with that? Um, you mean like electrical minor? engineering? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm I'm a high school dropout, so education and me are <laughs> not. Yeah. Not on par, but you're self-educated in the stuff that matters. That's yep, exactly. I I love knowledge, and I love to learn now at this point in my life. But in my well, teenage I, years, it was the worst thing in the world. Can I ask you what year you went to? Uh, so legally, I have a ninth grade education. I, wow, I dropped out four weeks before completing tenth grade. I went back, I had enough credit, so they put me in 11th grade and I made it I made it to November of deer season and took a week off to go deer hunting and haven't been back since. <laughs> You'll get around to it. Well, yeah. <laughs> do you know, back years ago, most of the very wealthy people had an 8th grade education, but they yep. had uh, a work ethic and they had a very creative mind and the word failure didn't exist. My grandfather was a poster child for that. He was an eighth grade dropout. Went in, he was drafted into the war, came back from the war and started a trucking company, ran it until he was 44, 45 years of age, retired, and then went back into it because he said my grandmother was going to kill him for being at home all the time yeah. and started another trucking company and ran it until 1983 when he was 65 years old. You know, we, eighth grade education. We, we have the opposite problem now. So, you know, there was a generation where a lot of people didn't finish school and they were still very successful. I, I barely made it through school. Neither one of my parents made it past the ninth grade. So education wasn't big in our family. Nobody ever went to college. I, I made it out of high school only. I think they just got rid of me. Um, I don't think they wanted me to come back anymore. So they graduated me. Um, now we have the opposite. <laughs> Now we have people who go through high school, go to college, spend eight years, and still can't tie their own shoes or produce anything practical. Yep. Well, that that was the point I was going to touch on for his for his son. So he's he's going to school and he's going to major in mechanical engineering, which is great. And to touch on Eric's point earlier about having to work in the field or some blue collar job, what what that gives you as an engineer is perspective into real world problems. Because a lot of times, like you said, people go to school, they learn engineering, they learn how math and science, they can use that to apply to problem solving. But then they begin to solve problems that aren't problems, or they don't know enough about the field that they're in to, to create a, a worthwhile solution. For example, when we talked about a few months ago, if someone with an electrical engineering degree built a sensor for a, a training truck that would send a, set an alarm off if the parking brake was set and you tried to move. That is a complete waste of time because you know if you have the parking brake set and you try to move. At least anyone with half a brain would know. Exactly. So this was a waste of time and a solution that did not need to be created. And it was created by somebody that was probably never in a truck. They don't know what it's like to try to pull out with the parking brake set. You know what I mean? And so if you ask me what your your son should be studying, I would agree with what Eric has to say. I would say try to get some sort of internship or work somewhere in the field that he's interested in as far as mechanical engineering. If it's engines, if it's snowmobiles, try to get an internship in there and then try to see what the problems are. Because before you even build anything or design anything, you need to understand the problem and then try to 
maybe creatively think of solutions to yourself. Not that you, because you, before you even build anything, you have to understand the problem. And when you do, you have to know what the failure areas are. Yeah. Like, oh, I, this has been built before. You might spend a bunch of time designing something that's already been made. Or like, in, for instance, like with Caterpillar, they may have designed this art head, which had been tried 30 years prior, and it just didn't work. You know what I mean? Maybe in, in 10 years, somebody will try to reproduce the art head and be like, I'll do it better. Like, no, it didn't work the first time. It's not going to work this time. So when it comes to engineering, you need to get perspective of the field. You need to see what the field is, what the problems are, and just gain working knowledge of what goes on there before you try to fix anything. Ask questions. I know like when I used to work for a, a local ATV dealership, we sold everything but Yamaha, Polaris, Suzuki, everything. When I would go to the service department and I would ask the lead technician, what model do you hate seeing on the schedule? I knew that was a problem child. Also on the tool trucks, when I get in and out of Snap-on, Matco, Cornwall, whatever, I look for specialty tools. Like this specific tool is for this specific job on this specific engine. That tells me I'm, I don't want to do that job because that looks like if you have to make specialty tools to get to something or remove a part, that sounds like a real pain in the ass. Uh, yeah. There's nothing I want to do. The, the other side of the coin of an engineering mindset is you say, what model is the most troublesome? To me, that excites me yeah. because I'm just like, well, what's wrong with it? Engineers are different people. Like, I love, my sister's one. I love her to death. They, but maybe different. we could fix it. <laughs> well, yeah. well back, back in the days with the big cam when Cummins Engineering would call us, and like CPL 217, it was a small cam 290, and it had very retarded timing. And they said, there's really nothing you can do with that engine, but it made a perfect 400 when you'd rebuild it because the timing was already set. And they, a lot of them appeared in triaxle dump trucks in western Pennsylvania, and we were getting 0.2 mile of the gallon without trying out of that engine. Wow. And it was an engine that uh, was to be a dud, just like the 840 and the 838. They told me that those would never run good. And so we have always, here in our 46 years, have taken what, what somebody says is not a good engine, like the old 903, and we made them great engines. Hey, Bruce, um, and, and I, I, I got to help you out here. You're not allowed to say the timing was retarded. You have to say that engine is somewhere on the spectrum. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Hey, hey, not as advanced as I want to know. If, hey, Bruce, what the do you engine, do if you have a the engine I was most impressed with what you were able to do with, and I've only heard stories about it, was the 444. I, I thought that thing was an absolute nightmare, but you seem to uh, have figured uh, out how to make that phenomenal. thing run. Yeah, phenomenal. Right, go right to 700 horsepower and live and good fuel mileage and just a beautiful engine, the 444. Uh, that was the problem. The mecha average mechanic didn't take the time to study the fuel system. The throttle response on your Kenworth was outstanding. I, I, I'll never forget that. On my 840, yeah. when Kevin drove. Yeah. That, uh, the throttle response was amazing to me. Oh, I mean, that, you just touched the pedal. and it, That was an incredible truck to drive. I had the joy of driving yeah. that thing around the country for a couple months and absolutely loved it. And that was an engine that uh, Cummins Engineering told me was made strictly for fuel mileage and no power. And it was made for the large fleets and I wouldn't be able to do anything with it. And the very first guy that came to see us was actually from Brazil, but living in New York city. And uh, man, when I saw that engine, I thought you gotta be kidding me. 
And so we got our heads together and we started working with it and uh, 500 horsepower from the 350. Timing's already set perfect. And the 838 was the 315 and it was the same. Everything was the same except the fuel pressure. So anyway, um, Matt, I've also been told by several other engineers, mechanical engineers that uh, you'll get basically two years of mechanical engineering and two years of electrical engineering today in college because everything mechanical is controlled electrically. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and yeah. I, when we were mm-hmm. up for orientation and I talked to a couple of the engineering professors and asked that question, you know, how much crossover is there between electrical and mechanical? And he said, well, there's, they're the same today. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, because everything is electronically controlled. So if I would, I was him. I would go on Google and start looking at a electrical stuff because if he's a mechanical guy, uh, when you look at electrical things, it uh, kind of draws a blank. So he should start just teaching himself electrical engineering off the computer, so he has a little bit of a head start. Yeah, and he's, I mean, much more interested in that stuff than I am. So he, so like you say, he's already working in the industry and. You know, it's it's quite possible if everything works out. He he might have the same job from sixteen, you know, for a career. Yep. Well, Matt, you you very Matt, tied you, in already. You shocked me when you told me you dropped out of uh, high school because listening to you on the radio and knowing you personally, uh, I would have guessed you had a bachelor's degree. <laughs> oh, one other interesting fact. That I, I just realized here the other day, uh, Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs has a foundation, Mike Rowe Works, where he does scholarships strictly for uh, the trades, for trade schools, not not four-year degrees. And he catches a lot of flack because, you know, people apply for certain stuff, but he won't even give a scholarship unless it's to a trade school. Just one of the rules he set up, and people seem to have a problem with that. But why? Uh, why? But there's a, there's that, that about 10,000 uh, well, different scholarships out there. I may be on the low side and somebody's going to have a problem with him because he wants to send people to trade school. Why don't they just go do something instead of criticizing he, everybody else? Yep. Oh, I, he also yeah. has a sweat pledge, you know, that talks about gratitude and, you know, work ethic. Cause that's what it is. A work ethic scholarship. And people have a problem with a lot of the wording in there, saying that they are going to be responsible for their own, you know, decisions. And (laughs) it's it's amazing society, how how much of a fit they can throw over getting free money. We we (laughs) live in clown world now. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm a high school dropout. I, I have a monthly donation to micro works for trade schools, but yet I'm sending paying for my son to go to a four-year degree. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what, though? If we look at college and what's happened to it, for the most part, there are very few really practical degrees left, but that's one of them. You know, a lot of Mm -hmm. what people are coming out of college with these days as far as degrees are kind of worthless, but the, the engineering degrees are still practical degrees. When you, when you ride the chairlifts in ski country and you talk to the young people that are in school, what are you majoring in psych? Everyone's majoring in psych. I said, what are you going to do with that? that 
They have no idea. They don't know. No, they have no clue. They're going to get a slight injury. Yeah. Now, yeah. Um, oh, uh, Dave now, Ramsey. Now here's an idea. Since left-handed. Since we know the engineering is is difficult, and you're going to have haters and all that other stuff, maybe your son should take a minor in psych so he could deal with all that crap. Job <laughs> <laughs> security. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he he has a low tolerance for uh, bullshit for that kind of stuff too. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, yeah. He's he's. He's more uh, in the mindset of our older generation on more practical. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, speaking of psych, I have a little glass thing on the window in my office. It says, "You never see a motorcycle parked in front of a psychiatrist's office." Well, you can also add, "You'll never see a semi truck parked in front of a psychiatrist's office," or you never hear of a farmer going to a psychiatrist, right? That's for people that have too much time on their hands. Exactly. When you're out working, it's hard to be depressed. Right. That's right. Okay. Uh, one other comment you made on the cat engines and the spark plug. Uh, Lee, I think you asked if any other diesel engines out there had them. International Tractor had a model that was a multi-fuel, and I don't remember if it was MF yeah. might have been the model, multi-fuel, but it started on gas just to warm up and then you threw a lever and then it ran on diesel. Hmm. But that there was a lot of from the forties or fifties. How about that? You know, just, um, yeah. 10 or 15 years ago, Arctic cat made, uh, an ATV that was multi-fuel. And I think it had the same kind of setup. Yeah, they had, I, I think during world war two, there was a lot of, equipment that ran started on gasoline and switched to diesel mm-hmm. yeah. well but leroy world war II, yeah. how, how old are you leroy? 31 oh he's leroy's 31 now he's catching up to us <laughs> <laughs> and you keep getting farther away <laughs> uh-huh. uh, all right matt yeah. we're gonna so i'll let you, you move along yeah we're gonna cut you loose we're gonna keep rolling here uh we're down to the last couple calls if you want to jump in we've still got time dial us up 855-950-3835 let's go to north carolina harold welcome to the program the school of hard knocks i love the education you give us i was politely asked to leave pepperdine when it used to be in watts after one year and then uh, built two trucking businesses over the last 48 years. <laughs> but I, I have a comment on the Caterpillar ACERT. I'm a little bit shocked. We had bought six of them when we had um, in 07. I bought them right before they were going to make them the uh, engine that put them out of business. And we had three of those black blocks crack down on the side right below the turbo. Three different ones. So when you said that was the strongest block ever, I was a little bit shocked. Yeah, we've never seen that in here. No, I've never seen a cracked acer block. That's odd. It, it, I guess it's rare, but I had three out of six. Fifty percent of mine did that. One of them, we had just had it rebuilt, and uh, they warrantied the block. But on the one I was driving myself, it was just seeping a little bit oil. It wasn't a pressurized leak or anything. But it, it made a mess, but I drove it probably eight or nine months like that and just kept cleaning it off. Finally broke down and put a short block in it and then didn't have any more problems. 
but those were putting out probably seven, seven-ish, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. Yeah. But I have a question. Bruce, do you like, um, on the monkey brittle, it's, there's a, a Mexican spice that my wife likes, cilantro. I know you've mentioned that in conjunction with the uh, heart uh, supplement you've got. And some people that like cilantro will like the, the cardio miracle. And I'm wondering if that applies to the monkey brittle. I've ordered some of that, and my wife just absolutely loved it. And I, I could take it or leave it. Well, here, now, that, that's not the same issue. So if we go to cilantro is a very, very unique herb. I grow a lot of cilantro. I use a lot of cilantro. I love it. But there is a genetic factor. We can look at somebody's it, genetics and tell whether or not they will probably like cilantro. There is a weird gene. Really? Yeah, there's a weird gene that if you have that gene, cilantro tends to taste like soap. It's awful. And then people go, how can you even eat that stuff? It's awful. But if you don't have that gene. Yeah, I hate it. I hate it. Cilantro is my favorite herb. I absolutely love cilantro. But it, 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 there actually is a gene that's responsible for that. Now, interesting. when you get these soft tacos, like from food trucks, don't they put a lot of cilantro yes. on those? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it looks. Um, yeah, I like. It, it looks almost like flat parsley. So if you see flat parsley yes, in the yes. store, a lot of people will confuse them. All you have to do is take a sniff, because cilantro is so distinct and it's got a really strong um, fragrance to it. But people either love it or hate it. There's nobody in between, and it's a gene that causes it. I have so I have no 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 correlation to the monkey brittle. Now, monkey brittle, here's what I would tell people. If you really like bananas, you'll love this stuff. It's all about banana. That That's what this is. The base of it is all banana. There's some raisins and nuts in there, and that's it. But it's the texture that you nobody has ever experienced before. So if you love banana, then, then this is a whole new way of experiencing that banana flavor. But if you don't really like banana, you're probably not going to like monkey brittle. Yeah, I could take them or leave them. So it was okay, but it didn't get me all excited. But I do love the the pork sticks with the maple syrup and bacon flavor. Those oh, that, are phenomenal. That's another one that, uh, <laughs> yeah, the good thing about those, though, is you can eat as many of those as you want. So you can put a whole, you know, bag full of those next to you and just eat them all day long. <laughs> what I've got about the, the pork sticks with maple syrup and bacon flavor. Yeah, so we've... Do you ca- sell that? We we do. We've carried beef sticks from a company called Paleo Valley for years and years. Um, And we've had the the owners on the show. One of the owners of the show, Autumn Smith, was like a personal trainer to the stars. Um, A lot of female um, musicians she trained. And then she got into the whole natural, you know, functional like we do and started this company called Paleo Valley. And they they make some supplements, but their beef sticks are incredible. They've got jalapeno, garlic, summer sausage. Jalapeno is my favorite beef stick. But then they brought out a pork stick. And this one just takes the game to a new level And because the pork is nice and fatty. And then they add a little bit of real maple syrup and bacon and these pork, they're almost as addictive as the monkey brittle. The good news, like I said, you can eat as many of these as you want. 
I, I only bring one package per trip and my trips are about three weeks, but, uh, I have to leave yeah. them at home or I'll just eat it all uh, right away. Exactly. <laughs> they, they are, like I say, I don't, I, I'm careful on monkey brittle. I, I will take a small amount, eat it. And that's it. You know, maybe a third or a fourth of a bag a day on monkey brittle. Cause it, there's sugar in there. It's got raisins and bananas. So we're a little careful on the sugar there, but the the beef sticks or the pork sticks, if I'm hungry, I'll eat one. I'll eat 10. I don't care. <laughs> they are good. Yes, they are. All right. What else you got? I had, I have one question on, uh, this is a truck that I had to put the new engine in the crate motor because of the boulder out in the flash flooding in California that I talked to you about yesterday. And Occasionally, when I have the cruise on, I'll press the clutch pedal to stop the cruise, and it won't stop. At first, I thought it was the clutch pedal switch, and then occasionally it won't go on, and it's not the same. It's not consistent in any way. I'm almost thinking it's the ECM or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be the switches, wiring, or ECM. Uh, it's typically not the ECM. I would probably say it's probably something in the wiring. But it doesn't do the same thing. Once in a while, it, the clutch switch won't work, and then once in a while, the brake switch won't work. I'll have to turn the switch off on the dash. So the switches will turn it on and off, um, but it's odd. I, I wiggled some wires around there below the ECM the other day, and it seemed like it didn't do it for a couple of days, but... It's it's not doing it all the time, so it's something that's pretty hard to diagnose when it won't do it. Did you yeah. say this truck was in a flood? I actually went, uh, no, it wasn't in a flood. On the day that 500 cars got stuck in Death Valley last year during, uh, August, it was August 8th, I was going across the highway that goes out to 29 Palms Military Base, and I went across two or three little flows of water across the, the road. It's a two-lane road out through there. And the last one I went through, it turned out to be the last one that I, there was a boulder in the water, under the water, and I hit the bottom of my pan and stopped the oil pump. And I, my electrics on my polar storm unit weren't working so to raise the hood up, so I started it to raise the hood up and take a look. I just thought a wire got uh, knocked loose, but it actually dented the bottom of the pan and I ended up putting a crate motor in it. it took me 41 days and I realized during that 41 days I could never retire. I was going crazy, waiting <laughs> for the engine to be put in. How, how old are you? 73. Oh, so you're a year younger than me. Yeah, that's yeah, the I'm, thing. Is, <laughs> I, yeah, I've got I'm the car the, carrier. I, I, the I got the car carrier, the red one I brought in when it was brand new, Bruce, and you took a picture of it. Oh, and yeah, said the okay. old guy that another old guy that doesn't know when to quit. Yeah, I can't stand the idea of stopping. I just, I, I am addicted to work, and I just love it. Well, and not only the work, but it's the movement, see? It's, it's when you're in one place for an extended period of time because you guys that have been moving your whole life, it, uh, you know, and the weather changes every couple hours. So it's, it's that nomadic lifestyle, and I have a little bit of that in me. That's why I move around a little bit. 
you know, sometimes if you if you go to Sturgis on a Harley Davidson, then you put it in a trailer and start home. You have you want to pull over and unload the bike and go for a ride on it. This it's something inside the body. Well, semi truck pulling a load will do the same thing to your body. And uh, Kevin and I talked years ago about the uh, dopamine and adrenaline and it was it endomorphines uh there's all kinds that, of stuff uh, get released and, yeah endorphins and all kinds of feel-good chemicals oxytocin and you know when you look on facebook and you see like uh, laverne cross and those guys take a picture of the morning sun coming up and uh, the open road ahead of them and looking out over the road of his a model kenworth and his brother dean cross will, looking out the hood of a 379 and they take pictures and post that's all part of that addiction yeah it's the view it's the open road but it's it's that addiction of driving that truck and that weight and, and uh, sometimes i can feel it whenever i'm just driving my dodge pulling a snowmobile trailer i i can drive that many miles further than i can drive a car there you go i understand that completely <laughs> Eric, you rode a Harley, didn't Many, many years. For many years. I mean, sometimes you just felt that you had to get on the bike. And, and sometimes it's only a half hour, half hour to an hour, and it just frees the mind. Well, that those are strange things that happen in the body. And, uh, you know, sitting in an office, if I'm behind this desk for a couple of hours, I'll walk into the shop sometimes. I wonder, why did I come into the shop? It's just to get away from a desk. Yep, I, I understand that completely. Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead, Harold. Sorry, Harold. Uh, the, the last job I did, I was in the, on the floor making beer bottle labeling machines. We were mechanics, electricians, and I was tired at the end of the day. But I remember after I started here, you would ask me, probably about six months into it, are you tired? And I didn't know what you meant. And then after the, the mental exhaustion here at the desk on the phones, it's a whole different tired. I know mm-hmm. what it's like to get up. You have to get up and move around. Yeah, yeah. In my last business, I ended up sitting in the office for five years because my dispatcher died of an aneurysm on a Saturday morning. And I ended up sitting in the office for about five years. And it it was okay. I, you know, we turned seven customers into 256 and went from four trucks to nine trucks. And, and I ended up just being so frustrated. I had a 25 foot cord in there and I would pace like a Panther around the room, looking out the window all day long and I finally sold to my largest competitor because I just couldn't stand being in the office. Two years well, later, I, bought car, car, I, yeah, I know your office is the corner office there. You've got windows. It's, it's a double office. And the reason is, is, uh, you know, we have wireless headsets and whenever you're in the deep discussions about how you can help a guy with the truck, it helps sometimes to just get up and walk and do laps. Yep. I've been in some engineering centers and they have a courtyard in the center. The building will be a U shape and you'll see engineers, you know, they'll, they'll be bald on the top and their hairs come back in the side and they have these curved pipes and they're just pacing back and forth holding that pipe. And, uh, and I asked, what are they doing? They said, they're thinking. <laughs> so, so here's, sometimes they said here's, in an office, you get a better results 
having meetings, walking down the hall or going outside. There's four or five people go for a little walk around the block and you get better results than just sitting there. You know, a couple of examples of this. I I had a phone call the other day, a business call. It went about two and a half hours. And during that time, I got 8,000 steps. I I walk the whole time I talk on the phone. I can't stand to sit still and talk on the phone. I usually pace when I'm doing the show as well. So I get all kinds of steps and But this past weekend, I was out in the garden. Weather was perfect. There's a lot going on, getting the garden started for the year. Um, I did back-to-back, like, 11-hour days in the garden. Really very few breaks. Lisa would bring me food once in a while, and I'd just eat it outside and go right back to work. And I loved it. And I was physically tired at the end of the day, but I felt really good. I can't do 11 hours of the kind of work I do most days. There is no way I could sit here at this desk and do research and write things and answer questions for 11 hours a day. I I can't do it. It would physically and mentally exhaust me. Here's why. I don't think people realize this. If you look at the brain and it is about 2% of our body weight, the brain is, it uses 20 to 25% of our energy for the day. We don't realize how tired we can get by using our brain. We, we don't think of that. That is correct. And what I have to do is you leave the office, you go home, you have dinner, you're mentally tired, you just want to lay down on the couch. If you do your evening shot. So you have to force yourself to go into the garage or go outside now this time of the year. And whether you get on a bicycle, get in a motorcycle or the lawnmower. Last night I trimmed trees until it got dark, but I have to do something physical each day. There you go. But, but back to the owner operators and this, uh, this movement, we've tried to take three owner operators. In fact, I've tried four in my career to take four owner operators out of their truck and put them in an office. And the first thing they ask a guy when he comes in, what do you have on your trailer? Where are you going? What's it pay? Not what's wrong with your truck. It's more about the load. And one guy only made it two weeks. He was back in the truck. A couple guys made it a couple months and it was just impossible to do that. And then I started working in strip mines on uh, Fiat Alice bulldozers with K-Series Cummins in them. And those guys were the same way. They couldn't stand to have a roof over their head. So it's... I understand it completely. After I sold my other trucking business, I figured I would never see another truck again. I was 46 years old then. And after about 18 months, I was just going nuts. I was walking and working around the house and doing stuff. But it wasn't enough for me, and I stumbled into car hauling, uh, hauling new Mercedes in the enclosed trucks, the cab over Freightliners. Uh, I went down there on a on a Monday, got in another truck the following Monday, and owned it the third Monday, and then we built that up to about nine trucks at one point. So now it's just me and my little dog, Teddy, and uh, it just feels good to do it now at there this age. Go. I just I can't imagine doing anything else. But I appreciate the School of Hard Knocks, all of your knowledge from philosophy to engines and everything you're reading, Kevin, it gives us so much knowledge and I just appreciate it. Well, thank you guys. You're welcome. And thanks for the support. Let's, uh, let's move on. Cause calls are starting to pile up now. Let's go to Wisconsin. John, welcome. Hey, hey Kevin. Hi guys. Um, 
My 09 Chevy Cobalt had electric steering. Did it battery really? went dead and I wasn't able to steer it. Uh, yep. Huh. Wasn't able to steer it at all. Um, the other question is more for Bruce. Uh, what is a core in the terminology of a radiator and how do you identify it in your radiator on your truck? All right. What kind of truck do you have? I have a International 9400. International's a tough one for us. Um, sometimes yeah, we you cannot. Guys yeah, you guys don't yeah. sell a replacement for it, but I'm just wondering what a core would look like in the radiator and just trying to understand it myself. So, so I'm wondering here, when you just said that, I thought of something. We use the term core when we're turning in a part, right? Right. Yeah. But but doesn't... We're talking about the center uh, of the radiator. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. That can be confusing because on a radiator, the term core means something different, or it could mean turning in a core possibly to get a different radiator. So yeah. I think we should clarify the, the different use of that word. One of the things when you look at a radiator... And the internationals use a cross flow mostly instead of vertical. Uh, yep. On on our custom rads, we have every tube is three eighths of an inch on center from one to the next. You can't go any closer because then you can't get the air through. And you want to look at how many fins per inch. We use 16 standard radiators or 14. The fins carry the heat away. So I said to the engineer when we started designing some rads, I said, well, why don't we do 18? And he said, well, we can't get the air through. you got to get the air through. But if you take a standard rad and you see, like on a vertical one, and you look under the hood of a truck, and if you see those tubes are a half inch and five-eighths apart, there's not many tubes, and so there's not a lot of cooling. So while we're talking about this, the numbers that I have in my header for a 379 or a 389. And by the way, I had a guy take our 379 radiator and put it in a Freightliner Classic. And he told me it was pretty easy. He only had to drill a couple of holes. But anyway, if you have a 379 with a D-Deck 4 500 Detroit, it comes with 177 tubes. If it has a 550 Cat, it comes with... 234 tubes. Our radiator has 400. The stock rads have a straight through tube. Ours are dimpled. And the reason they're dimpled is it slightly slows down the flow, but it makes the coolant touch the side of the radiator more. So let's say you had this big earth moving equipment and the, the tubes were five inches, like an exhaust pipe going through a radiator. The coolant that goes down through the center of that tube does not lose temperature. It has to touch the side of the tube. So that's the advantage of the dimpled tube. So along with the more fins per inch, the dimpled tube, and the more tubes with three-eighths inch on center hey. is what makes that radiator work so good. Unfortunately, we can't do that for every truck. And now that LKQ is buying up most of the radiator manufacturers and they don't want to do custom work. So it's getting harder and harder. Hey, Bruce, I was just thinking about the dimpling. If we, we take a piece of metal and we put a dimple in it, didn't we just stretch the metal? 
Well, you stretched it, but you also made more surface area. That, that's, yeah, that's what I was getting to. We stretch it to create that dimple and that stretch. And you've got, you know, thousands of these dimples on there gives us more surface area for cooling. Yeah. yeah we do that for two reasons. One for the, the more surface area, but also like a thermostat to slow the flow down. Right. Because the longer right. we can keep that coolant inside the cooler grad, the more heat it can be absorbed and, and dissipate through the fins. Yeah. Now to answer your question, the yeah, or if you took your radiator and stripped the tanks off the sides, top, bottom, everything, what's left is your basic core. It's kind of like the the foundation of a house is where you have it, and then you build off of that, which would be like your tanks, your spout connector, stuff like that. Some of the internationals, like Bruce was saying, they can be hit and miss whether we can get them or not. I've even seen them before where they had a split radiator and charge air cooler inside the same framework the left side was a radiator the right side was a charge air cooler and i wow that was like mind-boggling because if you literally cut the size in half on both uh, we had one in here before that had a hole in the center there was an actual square hole built with a framework that was for a shaft to come out for a front pto drive uh, it was on some kind of a pumper truck if i remember right but Really interesting stuff that some of these manufacturers have built over the years. But that's basically what, to answer your first question, what is a core is the basic, like, it's just the assembly of the tubes and yes. everything in the middle. Correct. It's like the foundation of a house. And you build off of that with yeah. your tanks, spout connectors and everything. Okay. I must be getting terminology wrong because my mechanic ordered a four core radiator and ended up getting a two core radiator so i had to wait another day for him to get the other four core so i was just trying to get that uh probably would understand okay. that but a lot of people use core and like improperly yes. it's like the number of tubes like in each layer rows. right okay. yeah, this in this case rows and this is another case for the word core it can be the center of an apple it can be a used part you turn in for a money it can also be the center of the radiator, but in this case, a four row or a three row or how many rows are in that radiator. Now, the number ah. of rows, a lot of bigger is better. It's not. Once you get past a four row rad, you start to lose its thermal efficiency because you have to sacrifice something because you still only have X, Y, Z. You only have so many inches to work with. And when you get into a five row, when you get into a five row, I know where you're going, you have to sacrifice either the number, the size, or the spacing of the tubes. And the tubes are what do the heavy work. That's what gets rid of the heat. So when you get into like uh, some of our, some of the rads I've seen out in the market before, they advertise a five row, six row. I've even seen seven or eight, I think was the most I've ever seen. You have to have quite a fan to pull through that. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. laughing at it. I'm thinking, how, why would you even market this? Yeah. Some people use the, the term row and core interchangeably. So if you have a four core, it's like a four row. If you have a two core, it's a two row. Exactly. People use it interchangeably. But yes. just the core is technically okay. just the assembly of the middle. Yeah, and that might have been, you know, miscommunication or misunderstanding on my end too. I, I just assumed you meant the middle of the rad, but yeah, what you meant was a row. Yeah, a three row, okay. four row, whatever. And we've actually shot one, like a five row with a thermal gun, and you can actually see that it, it actually does not lose the heat. You should typically lose about fifteen degrees between the top and the bottom of your radiator with a thermal gun to make sure that it's working efficiently. If you're not losing fifteen degrees, the radiator is not working efficiently. That's a good tip. The like reason we the reason we use four row and like the three seventy nine and the W nine was the engineer I was working with years ago said that the fifth row doesn't get enough air to cool, so they try to stay with four. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, like I said, you, it's either that or you have to have a massive fan to pull air through it if you're going to have a five, six yeah. rope thing. Yeah, but yeah. however, a fan only works good at 45 mile per hour. After 45, the the fan doesn't do anything. No. And at that point, how much horsepower is that big fan going to pull every time it comes on? Right, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. All right, John, anything else? No, that answered my question. All so right. Thank you guys very much for explaining it to me. You're welcome. We're going to move no along. Let's go to Ohio. Herschel, welcome. Hey, Kevin. You, you always catch me when I'm at the CSX and I got my four ways on. You got to listen to the clickety clack in this Volvo. Yep, we can <laughs> it hear it. happens every time. We can hear it. <laughs> Bruce, you were talking about different deals and getting away. Do you realize how many business deals have been made on a golf course? Oh, boy. Bunches and bunches well, and bunches. I, I went to uh, on the Wheeling, West Virginia. What's that resort called down there? Beautiful place. Uh, but, uh, and Great it, Wolf it Lodge. Was a school. What is it? The Great Wolf Lodge. Down in Wheeling. It was the Wilson Lodge. We were in the Wilson Lodge, but... So I went down there and I set up, I had the safety plus there cause it was a great item for school buses, the steering stabilizer. And, uh, come about 11 o'clock, everybody's leaving the convention center. And I said, where's everybody going? They said, well, we're going out to play golf. I said, that's it. We're only here from eight to 11. And then would you go play golf? And I thought we were going to be in the convention center all day. So I called up to the shop. I, had my parts guy go and get my golf clubs and bring them down. And we're out in the golf course. And I said to the one guy, so we'll be in deals are made in the golf course. Let's talk about what do we have to do to get safety pluses on your school buses? He said, man, we don't have enough money to buy stuff like that. <laughs> so that was my only deal that I ever tried on a golf course and it didn't work. <laughs> well, Back in the day when we when we had the CDL of it, you were talking about your phone number. I was just listening to it this morning, and you couldn't think of an engine for your 360 to start your phone number. Well, it was Ford and Dodge both had a 360 gas job, didn't they? Yeah, I think of that every time. The 5.9. The 5.9. Yeah. Alan Goble, 289 Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Alan's no Alan sold out to LKQ, so he's no longer part of that. But yeah, that's how I remember uh, that. Every time I'm hot Western Truck Parts phone number, I think of that two eight nine three three one eight. And Kevin, first time I told you that, I was sitting in a parking lot in Kremlin, Colorado, and we were doing a radio show. I remember. It stuck with me too. Bruce, yeah. Bruce, I know you catch some grief about the catalyst, and everybody, oh, this poor catalyst on it, but. This one is a is a Volvo. It's a D13. I had good experience with it in the original Christine. This one I call Christine Jr. because it does weird stuff. But I started Catalyst the first day I bought it in September. You don't, you know, I, there's all kinds of conjecture. If you go on the Volvo groups, oh my God, they have just blasted. Volvo Engineering says no, but nobody can explain why. When you ask, but I've had it since September. Last year, here we are, well, we're almost to June, and I have had zero emission-related anything. It just goes. I've had problems, but nothing emission-related, nothing. That's right. All OEMs. 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Hey, you you thought about using the catalyst play. along with uh, the Lucas to get the lubricity. Well, Volvo, of course, is big for the cetane. So, well, to me, the catalyst is doing this. Cetane is doing that. Totally different thing. So I just use both, and I haven't had a minute's trouble. Nothing. That's right. I still use the hot shot along with it. I'm not at a bit of problem. You know, if the government keeps going after the oil companies, like they're going after the power plant companies now, they keep taking all the good stuff out. So you, as an owner-operator, need to put the stuff back in to make the fuel decent. But all OEMs will tell you, oh, no, when we engineer our engine, you don't have to do anything. And that's not true. So no, everybody has a mix of problems. Uh, they all make soot. They all make soot and carbon. And uh, if they didn't, they wouldn't need a DPF. Right. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. So have you guys uh, seen? Engine is so well engineered, and that new piston doesn't need catalyst. Why do they have a DPF on it? It's just that good. Exactly. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah. So. So have you seen the new Caterpillar? Uh, I want to say it's called 13D, as in David or Diesel. It's a 13-liter engine. It goes from, if I remember right, 450 to 560 or something for horsepower. Have you seen that thing? I don't know if they're going to go back into trucks, but I sure hope they do. That would be interesting if they used that in a truck. Yeah. I didn't know if you had seen that before. There was a, a really no. good video on YouTube from a guy named Adept Ape. He's really big into Caterpillar, and he explained yeah, it. Well, it's we, pretty interesting. It, it's know, interesting. If we think about something, though, I think the odds of Caterpillar ever coming back out on the road are slim to none. Think about it. What, what was the last year they built an engine? 08? For on-road? Oh, well, they made they made some Nine. 2000. Nine. Yeah. 2010. 2010. 10. So those were leftover engines that appeared in some peaks. So so let's call it 10. They've been out of the market for 13 years to get back into the market would be really difficult at this point. And why would they bother when the government's pushing electric so hard? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like they could get back in even if they wanted to, but what, what truck manufacturer is going to pick that up? You know, international has their own engine. Volvo and Packard has their own Peterville and Kenworth have their own. That's that would be like killing off Packar. that to themselves. Now, when to, am I remembering this right? When when Cat quit the on road market, didn't they build a truck for off road construction? That yeah, but International built it. It was it was badged badged as Cat, but International really built it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was a joint business with International Caterpillar. Got it. Yeah. I heard that. No, thing I have bird muffin too. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's horrible. Piece of junk. Kind of like a sterling. <laughs> also known as a turdling, if you ever had one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, the problem there was International was run so poorly with that Hebe guy for for so many years. That's when they had all their problems. I'm hoping now with with the new CEO who actually came from Volvo that International is back in the game again. Guys, I'll let you go so I can drop this trailer. All right. Thanks for the call. All right, let's, let's, All right, bud. Uh, All right, bud. Let's go to Washington this time. David, welcome to the program. Oh, let's try that again. There we go. Hello. 
What's on your mind today? I'm just crossing the scales here. Hey, I have a alternator issue or a battery light issue that I wanted to talk about. I have a intermittent battery light coming on, and I'm wondering how integrated is that into the ECM on a Volvo? What year is it? It's a 15. I mean, it's not really integrated in the ECM. Any, I mean, the ECM reads what its battery voltage is and will display it, but that's not going to be what's kicking on your battery light. That's going to be the, uh, the the cab itself, some sort of chassis module, whether it's the instrument cluster or what other several modules they have in there. Something's picking that up and putting the, the light on. Probably the instrument cluster. But. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I replaced the alternator. Uh, the light was coming on. Well, the old alternator was completely shot, and so I upgraded to a 240 amp, And but I'm still getting that intermittent light. Could it be the key switch itself, the ignition switch? No, it wouldn't be I that. It would be the power. I mean, you, you should be able to hook up to, to Tech Tool, their, their um, Volvo software, and it should tell you which yeah. module is getting a low voltage. Oh, maybe I can do that. Yeah, because all the, all the batteries are current. I mean, everything's just fine. Uh, alternators working great. The old alternator, I was getting a spike up to 14.5, and the alternator before that, I was getting that same spike. I thought of the batteries, so I swapped them all out, and then uh, this this alternator seems to be staying right at 13.8, but the light just comes on and off on its own. It doesn't seem to... I thought maybe it was a bad wire or something, but I called Volvo, and they said I could update to a 240 amp alternator, no problem. There wasn't any computer issues, but I thought maybe it's something you guys didn't know about. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't upgrade alternators until you see which module is seeing the low voltage. Because if it's just one module seeing low voltage, and all the other ones are fine, then it might be just a connection issue with that one module. If they all yeah, say low I'm, voltage, it's, then it's an alternator or something. Yeah, because it doesn't throw any codes up either. So it just. It just the light just comes on and goes back off whenever it wants. So um, mm. maybe it's a key switch because I took the key ignition switch out and I looked at it and behind you know where the contacts are you can see the little brass fittings behind it and there was like four mm. of them that were kind of black like maybe it was time to change the ignition switch. I'm going to go ahead and do that anyways. But um, mm. uh, everything seems to be working just fine though. There is no codes or anything, but it's just that light blinking off and on every once in a while. It's got me a little rattled. So. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That would have me rattle too. <laughs> yeah, it's a little. I have to put something in front of it to keep it from annoying me. <laughs> Anyways, so that's all I want. Right? Yeah, I thought about that too, but I want to see it every once in a while and make sure it's not staying on. <laughs> so, right. my it turns on, I flip it over and check the voltage, and it's always running around thirteen eight, thirteen nine, which is perfect. So I've lost. Uh, hey. How, yeah. how old are you? How old are you? I'm 56. How many years trucking? 37. How many days can you stay at home? Oh, I get one day at home, and normally it's underneath this truck. <laughs> so I get no time at home. Okay. So normally I get if Saturday you do off, get time at home, how many days is it before you're ready to hit the road again? Uh, probably about three. I'm usually ready to get the heck out at Dodge. I usually never stay home more than three. The only time I stay home, I lose so much money uh, just by taking, because I only haul, I go two trips to Great Falls every week, and half my week's gone if I take a week, you know, take the latter part of the week off. So I just stay in it. So 
I don't have any enjoyment going home really anyways. I just stay out here on the road. So, And I spent nine years in dispatch and operation before getting into the engine business. And I was with Allied Van Lines. And we had a driver. I didn't see him for two months. He stayed in the West Coast. And he came in and one day he said, don't bother me for two weeks. I'm staying home. I said, okay. And uh, we had NH250, so you can't say that it was the thrill of driving in the truck. The third day, <laughs> he comes in standing over my shoulder, and he's looking at the dispatch board. And, and I, I forget his name right now, and I said, what are you doing? He said, I just wanted to see what you had. I said, well, you stole me two weeks. We're only, this is the third day. I think he made it five days, and he was gone again. So, and... Then, uh, you know, it's just little things you remember from this industry. And it seems like three days seems to be about the average. And for well, people I that stay home a week, I start to get, uh, start, it starts to, I start to get used to going home, being home, you know, and after about the third week, I don't want to go back out, but oh, I just stay in it. Okay. You know, I stay, I stay busy. Yeah. Cause, but I guess I don't know anybody that does this and stay home for three weeks. <laughs> so I own their own truck and pay the bills. People that decide to retire and sell their truck and their trailer and it's paid for and whether they're 62 or 66 years old uh, and if they've been on the road their whole life, usually the average is about six weeks and they're out getting another truck. Yep. All right. Calls are starting to pile up. We got to move along. We're going to head off to uh, South Carolina. Uh, Paul, is this your second call today? Yeah, yeah, but same problem. Do, but do you have right do, started early? So. You're going to have to turn in a second call coupon. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think I, I think I got a, a coupon available. Okay, all right. Rewards points. Yeah, but, go ahead. Yeah, so so I I I, I was wait sat down the road there. The truck stopped next door and had the truck shut off. And then uh, okay, trying to go to work, logged on and get out. And well, I'd already done my pre trip anyway, so I'm sitting there and I go to take off and. Uh, starts idling funny and coughing and spluttering and we ain't going anywhere except down here to the back to the Peterbilt dealer for them to look at it so just thought I'd let you know so yeah so you don't have a throttle now uh well it's 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 idling really funny you know coughing and spluttering and uh it ain't right so seeing I'm here at a dealership I might as well get them to look at it rather than drive 50 miles down the road and then have to get a tow truck so yeah. yeah. So can't always make it to Pittsburgh Power to get my repairs and quality service, but it's tough when you can't. But the first, the first, uh, there, yeah. the first, the first question he asked me, or the first couple of questions he asked me is, "Who owns that truck?" I said, "I do. I'm the guy you got to deal with." Okay, what engine? ISX 600 Cummins. Is it deleted? No, it's a fully compliant emission engine. Oh, okay, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. So other, I'm thinking if I'd give him the other answer, I'm sorry, sir, we're unable to help you at this time. I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> so they might even say, don't pour it on the lot. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yeah. So, right. Okay. That's all I got. Bye. Uh-oh. I'll keep you informed. Uh-oh. Hey, I just, uh, I think I did it. I'm not sure. Um, I looked away as I was clicking. I think I uh, dropped Pittsburgh power, so um, we're going to have to get them back. Uh, looks like they're already heading back in, so I will grab this call. 
and we'll bring them in here in just a second. There they are. Uh, there, did you sorry, hang up on us? I, I did. I did. I admit <laughs> it, though. You know, I, I could easily play I, I, I could easily play this off and say it's sunspots or the North Koreans hacking me or whatever. But I admit <laughs> it when when I say I hung up on you, I did. So go ahead. <laughs> uh, David in Kentucky. Welcome. Oh, hello, Kevin. Hello, guys. Uh, got a 2000 ISX signature series. Uh, had some ECM problems shut down, shut me down for two weeks and got everything back running. It turned out to be the light cluster on the dash that robbed the power going to the ECM so it wouldn't fire. But now my fan switch on the dash, if I turn my manual fan switch on, it will kill my engine. I didn't know if you had any ideas on that one. Uh, no, that's bad. Wow. Uh, that's <laughs> that bad, should, isn't it? That shouldn't do that. No, that's a new one. Yeah, I mean, I did it the first time when I was at speed on the highway, reached over and flipped that fan switch on, and uh, I had no throttle response. I flipped the fan switch back off, and the motor takes right back off. So, like, the engine dies or you just lose throttle response? No. Uh, the engine has no power, and there's no throttle response. I mean, it, it just kind of idles down the road. Okay. Yeah, it shuts it's off. Okay. okay, so it stays running. You're just losing Okay, yeah, I, just, okay. I thought the way you made it sound was it completely shut off, but... Uh. No, it comes right back on when you flip the switch the other direction. Gives yeah. you, gives you no, that, throttle. That that is not good. What kind um, of truck? It's a Peterbilt 379. Hmm. That's uh, that's gonna have to get looked at. You know, I don't have anything. I need to, that one. So I need to come to Pittsburgh Power. That's what I need to do. Yeah, that's what you need to do. Uh, I'll give you a call after the show. See what you can work me in. Okay, sounds good. Yep. All right. Thanks, guys. Yep. Sounds Thank you. like we've got a plan. Let's uh, let's go to Wisconsin. Brian, welcome to the program. Hello, everyone. I'm looking to re-gear my truck, but I got a question before this. Uh, I got a 2017 Freightliner Cascadia with the DD15, and I have a double overdrive transmission. 0.73 on the first one and 0.86 on the second one. I'm at about a million miles. I'm I'm thinking maybe I want to open them up and inspect them first before going through this. I might have life left on them. You mean the differentials? Yeah. Well, first off, not I would say not might have life. The average differential with, you know, even student drivers in it, not a whole lot of care tends to go about a million and a half. So we're we're not even to okay. what the typical life of that differential should be. I, I've taken the lightweight differentials in tandems and converted them to singles. And everybody told me I was going to tear up the differential. It would never last. I've had those go a million plus. So you, okay, you so likely, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, you <laughs> likely have a lot of left life left. You should, um, have you ever sampled them? Um, no, I haven't. So, I just change them when they're supposed to be changed. Well, which is right now, I assume it got changed at 500,000. It's due again at a million, but yep. I would, I would sample them before you change it, but I, I wouldn't take them apart. Okay. Well, I was, I was, I guess I'm getting excited because I want to try to re-gear it for the run direct. Yeah. If you re-gear, that's a whole different story. But if you're not going to re-gear, I would sample them. And if there's no problems, change the fluid, move along. What, so, what gear ratio do you have? 3.25. So you want to 
So what what is your RPM at your cruising speed? Um, at 70, I'm at 1,400. And do you want to keep it there? Um, no, no. I, I, it's a DD-15. I think you're supposed to run them a little lower, aren't you? Yeah, quite a bit lower. What year what, is it? Yeah, what year? I, I, yeah. I do 65, so I, I, I don't go 70 all the time. So 65 is my, my cruising speed. I think 247 is your gear. Might be. Okay. Uh, I, I was thinking so, too, because I was talking to a cat guy, and he has... 250s, which uh, he kind of confused me on some stuff. He says it's the same as a 264, but no, it's not. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I didn't think so either. So maybe what he's trying to say is sometimes ratios are close enough that it's hard to distinguish when you're driving the truck. But And I could see that a 250 and a 264, close enough, you'd have a tough time distinguishing. That doesn't mean you should just pick one of the two. There is a better one. Even if we can't distinguish it driving it, we know it's better. So... Yeah. That, that that's kind of a generalization that I don't like. I, I wouldn't do that. Are you a low pro 22.5 tire? That is correct. At 65 with 247s in direct gear, you'd be at 13.75. Which I think is a good RPM for... Now let me tell you what the 264 is. So remember that 13.75 and 264 is 14.64. So it's 75, 85 RPM difference. And that's significant. Yeah, but that a lot of too, But too a, a lot of drivers can't feel that difference, but we know it's there and it makes a difference in performance, emissions, fuel mileage, everything. Right. I got what? some guys Are telling me I want to go 308. Are you a 13 or an 18? 13. 13. Now, if you go to a 308 in 13th gear, at 65, you'll be at 1265 RPM. Yeah, they're, so you guys are telling me I want to take advantage 13th. of the overdrive. Wait, that's wait, in 13th it, gear. You're going to spend a lot of time in 12th gear, and you don't want to be there. You want to be in 11th gear. Here's where people right. are starting to get confused. We have to now start separating the old generation transmissions, the 10, 13, and 18 speeds, we have to separate those from the new generation smart transmissions, which tend to be 12 speeds, or Volvo's really nice transmission is a 14 speed. They're totally different architecture. And the architecture has changed enough that we don't necessarily need to spec direct anymore. There's only about a 1% difference between their transmissions efficiency running in an overdrive gear and a direct gear. 1% is not anything to be spending a bunch of money on. So there are times now where we spec these trucks to primarily run in an overdrive gear. They're capable, if we spec it right, of running in direct when we have time and we're really going to go slow. But the older 13, 18, 10, well, 10s aren't the big deal. It's the 13 and the 18. They're, they lose about 3% efficiency when you go into an overdrive gear. So that's so we have to remember that our mindset has to change somewhat with the newer drivetrains that we've got available. So that's, that's what right. I think so somebody's my, hearing. They're telling you to spec this to run. You would spend most of your time in the least efficient gear in that transmission. 
The least efficient gear in your transmission is 13th. And the 308s, they're specking to run all day in the least efficient gear. Okay, yeah. Uh, my next question here, uh, you know, the guys say 3% gain. What, 3% gain on what? Who says a 3% Fuel mileage? gain? By doing what? By running in 308 in that somebody told you? No, the 3% gain. Um, what is the 3% gain I, I, I don't, from? I don't know. Fuel you, mileage? You is have, that the 3%? You have to tell me what they're saying. What statement are we talking about here? Well, no, my question is, uh, oh, when, I, says when I say 3% gain, yeah. yes. If what we, is the 3% gain? If we take a 13 or an 18 speed and it is currently specced to run in direct or overdrive, the final overdrive, and let's say we're going to run at 65 miles an hour in 13th gear. If we then change the differentials so we can run 65 miles an hour in 11th gear at the same speed, we have now increased fuel efficiency by 3%. Okay. Well, 3% of 5 miles per gallon is different than 3% of 8 miles per gallon. So you just bring up a really good topic, and I've talked about this many (laughs) times, and I don't know how to get away from this. This has never made sense to me, but this is how the industry does it. So uh, there's no way I could prove that 3%. I, I I don't have enough trucks and enough miles and enough to test that and prove it. So there are some things we've proven There are other things we depend on the industry to prove with big numbers. The problem is the industry always reports everything as a percentage in fuel mileage. We don't. We've always reported it as tenths of a mile per gallon. So that's why we use both. If, If there's something we've tested and proven, we tend to use tenths of a mile per gallon. The industry, though, tends to use the percentages, and I've fought back forever. A guy who's getting five miles to the gallon and gets a 10% improvement gets a half mile per gallon. A guy getting 10 miles to the gallon gets a full mile per gallon, and it's the opposite. It almost never works that way in the real world. The truck getting worse fuel economy tends to get a bigger gain from these things. And as we get higher and higher in fuel mileage, we tend to get smaller. So using a percentage is almost backwards. But that's how the right. industry reports it. Okay, that, that helps to think about if it's worth it for me to do it. And doing it prematurely is probably not the correct thing to do. I should run my rear ends out completely. Let, and, let me ask you this. And, give, hey, um, I may have lost track here. What? Give me just real quick the year, make, model, engine of this truck. 2017... Freightliner Cascadia DD-15. Yeah. So how have you, say, pulled into Pittsburgh Power? And here's what I would do. I'd get a Hawkeye report and I'd get a fuel mileage report. What are all the things we are capable of doing on this particular truck and engine to get better fuel economy? All the way down to rolling resistance on tires, lighter weight oils, all of our strategies. When you've done all all of them, then maybe think about changing those rear ends. Right. Um, leads me to another question. I have a PDI tuner in my truck. Uh, what do you guys think of PDI stuff? We don't. 
Yeah. No, no opinion. <laughs> I, what was good about their product is they sent me the tuner with a, a four inch screen. You basically plugged it into your ECM, hooked it up to the internet and downloaded their, their tune. I, I did that and I put a fleet air filter in at the same time and I got about a half a mile to a gallon out of that. That's good. Yeah, and that, I could see that, and it's both you're getting about half of each out of those, so that that would make sense. That's another thing that bothers me. They couldn't tell me what horsepower I'd get out. It was a percentage again, <laughs> you know. But but I had it dynoed. I'm I'm almost putting 600 to the ground with their tune. And like a lot of tunes, if, if you drive it properly, you usually should get better fuel economy. If you drive it to have fun, you can likely get worse fuel economy. Yeah, I, I'm driving for fuel mileage. That's that's my uh, my my uh, goal. Good. So years ago, I came up with the figure of going to direct that we save about 80 horsepower and gain. Uh, we gain 80 horsepower and 240 foot-pound of torque. So that's why people say, wow, I don't touch a shifter now when I come to a grade where I used to have to split the gear or drop a gear. I just go up and over. Yeah. Whether it's uh, 180 foot-pound of torque or 240 or 280, but you're gaining torque by running in direct. All right. Well, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. The The truck seems a little... It doesn't climb hills like I think it should, but it, it, it's a different kind of truck than I've had in the past. You know, the past was, you know, 355s. And, so, and so I'm a little surprised because, there, you know, we can either help a truck get up hills with gearing if it's got low horsepower or if it doesn't have the right gearing, we can get up the hill with more horsepower. You've got quite a bit of horsepower and torque, it seems like, out of that tune. I'm surprised you think this thing is kind of doggish. It seems odd. Well, when you're trying to drive for fuel mileage, I, I like to keep the, the boost around 20. But obviously, when you're starting to climb some big hills, you can't keep it at 20. Oh, that's when okay. I'll put it up so, to about 28 pounds. Uh, so what? And, you're, and not, you're not saying the engine's a dog then. You're just saying you're, you're no, easing up, up the hill. No, it up and goes if I get yeah, on it. Yeah, you're easing up the hill. That's, that's fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't you have to scream it up every hill either, you know. Right. You have to use boost, though, to go over the hill. You, you don't get any fuel mileage going uphill. You get fuel mileage going down a hill and on the level. So you have to get up and over, and you have to use power for that. Yeah. Try hitting the hill a little bit faster. Yes. And then using the momentum in the truck. Yep. Momentum's a big right. a big key to getting over those hills properly. Calls keep piling up. We uh you know, shorten up some of the calls and stick to the issues. We're gonna go to North Dakota. <laughs> Richard, welcome to the program. Hey guys, I called last week and about my electrical issue on my T six hundred, took my batteries out because my start module messed up. I got everything wired up, took a picture of it, and got it all back in there. It wouldn't start. I changed all the, the starter relay and the circuit breaker in it. <clears throat> I got to looking at it, and I was I was telling Ethan or Leroy that I was trying to put a jumper cable on the positive of the battery and touch that circuit breaker, and it would make a, 
a loud pop and a spark. It kind of worried me. He said, "Oh, don't worry about it. I'm just going to put it on it." And I did it again. And I'm like, "That don't. That sounds like a. That looks like a welder right there." So I got to looking at it, and uh, I pulled one of the 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 cables off that connects the batteries, the negative, negative, positive, positive, and it had a wire coming out of it that went to that circuit breaker. I pulled that that cable off from the battery, and it was black on top turned it over and it's red on bottom. I had that on a negative. <laughs> I've switched that over, put it on the positive, my truck fired right up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> nah, I know it happens. Everybody. I was going to keep that secret between you and me, David, but hey, <laughs> uh, I talked the extra show. I was going to keep my mouth shut. My deal was that you know, I held up on my end, but <laughs> I'm trying to work. <laughs> And as far as the tunes, I'm loving my truck, and I'm fixing to get my other truck on the road, my other T600, and it's got a Detroit. It's going to get a tune in it. It's got a max horsepower of 470, so what can I get done to that one on a tune? Mm, what year Detroit is it? It's a 2002 T600. Yeah. It is what a 127 Detroit. What turbo? Uh, it don't have, it's a stock turbo. It don't have y'all's. Turbo or manifold on it, yeah. You might get like 580, 600 out of it, and then we'll uh, probably want to get a bigger turbo on there. But with what you got, you can probably do like 580, 600. Okay. Uh, and I will be getting a turbo or manifold for that one too, but um, I'm going to be jumping into that one while I'm doing some work on this one, getting the rear ends changed out. And uh, so I'm going to probably get a tune on that so I ain't got to be dragging around. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Yep. Appreciate it, guys. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. No Thanks for the call. Yep. Let's grab another one. Let's go to BC this time. Murray, welcome to the program. Morning, gentlemen. What's on your mind today? Uh, just a couple of well, a couple of quick comments. First of all, in regards to easy oil changes, uh, we have a 2017 Hyundai Sonata. I know it's a Hyundai. We'll just we'll park that one there. But at least the engineers figured that out. They've got that great big skid plate underneath it, you know, like all the new cars do. And right underneath the oil pan, they put. Uh, a plastic piece, well, the whole thing is plastic, but they put a removable piece. It's about, you know, about eight or ten inches square. You take out one quarter turn uh, nut and, like, by hand, and this thing drops down, and the oil filter is right beside the block and about three inches from from the um, oil plug. And and you talk about easy oil changes. I could do it all in one drip pan and, and just... Easy peasy, easiest oil change you know, I've ever done. You know, I and and in regard. Go ahead, finish go ahead. that thought. Or is that? Are you on to a new thought? Uh, well, I was going to uh, change that a little bit, but you go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, I, I was going to say you kind of said just ignore the fact that it's a Hyundai. I, I got to say I am impressed <laughs> with the South Korean cars. When you look at what Kia and Hyundai were able to do in a very short period of time, and what they did was they copied the Japanese and cut the timeline down from three decades to one. When the Japanese first brought cars over here, Hondas, Toyotas, they were total garbage. They were junk. They rusted out. They were awful. And there's actually a story here. There was a um, a professor in the United States who came up with a, a manufacturing process that was wildly different. I'm trying to think of the name of it right now. It's not coming to me. Um, Dent. Denton was the guy's name, I think. Edward Denton, maybe. Um, He took it to all the automakers in the U.S., and none of them would try it. And he took it to Japan, and that's how the Japanese kicked our ass in cars 
And the South Koreans looked at what they did and cut that timeline down. And they produce pretty damn reliable cars that people like, and they give them 100,000 mile warranties, and they still sell for less than the American cars. Although that's changing, too, because they're moving into the high-end markets that all the Americans wanted, higher-end luxury cars, and they're beating the Americans at that game. uh, You know, and it's funny you mentioned that. I I said when, like you mentioned the 80s, when when they came over and started making throwaway cars, and I said, you watch. I says, those Japanese are going to go back home, and they're going to figure out how to make a Cadillac and make it run better and be better. Then and beat us at our own game, and here we have Acura and Tegra and all the rest of them. And we didn't learn from the Japanese taking over every market in automobiles except pickup trucks. That's the only one they, and they're making more inroads there now, too. We didn't learn from that. Now we're letting the South Koreans do it. Yeah. And you know what? That little Sonata, I cannot believe they can churn that kind of power out of that two liter, little, little two-liter motor. They're amazing. Just, Look, they're amazing. It is the cars. funnest car I've ever driven. I, it's so much fun. Uh, they really are. Anyway, that wasn't the reason I called. Um, you you uh, mentioned retiring early. I'm 59 this fall, and and I, I have no intention of hanging the keys up before I hit 70. God willing, as long as He lets me have my health, I'll I'll stay out here as long as as long as they let me have a, a health certificate that uh, you know a doctor's certificate. I, I think the human body is made to work. It, it, it's, it, it, and if you don't work, it's like machinery. It sets up and breaks down. Well, if, you, if you ever can't pass your physical, we can help you with that, too. Yeah, good. Good to hear it. I, you know, even if like, let's, at, at 75, I don't want to be working 70 hours a week anymore. I'd like to slow down to maybe, you know, uh, a more relaxed pace. But uh, Yeah, part, but, um, part-time like 50 hours or so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a dispatcher that says if I work less than 10 hours a day, I'm working part-time. Well, I, I, I learned the secret to success a long, long time ago. The secret really is work half days. You just have to figure out if it's the first 12 yeah. hours or the second. Exactly, exactly. Um, you were also mentioning owner-operators. I sold my last truck in June, and, and, went, and I have owned my own truck multiple times, and I've been driver and owner-operator multiple times in the last 40 years through my career. And, and when I sold my truck and I've been successful sometimes and not successful sometimes, and, and I figured out kind of with all my past mistakes, how to make a success of it. And then along came Kevin's advice. And, and I, I figured out that you get the, you get the work dialed in first and then go find the truck to do the work. And, and I've said for years, that the trick to being a success as an owner operator is finding long term steady work. You can work for less as long as you have long-term steady work. Yes. And, and then of course, add to that, you know, the, the, the information that you have on your website and in your college there and, or in your university, university. And, and, and it's, it's, it's hard, but I told him when I sold the truck in last, last year, I said, I reserve the right to do stupid again. You know, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to get a job driving. I love my job driving. It's a great job. What I'm, what I'm doing, the company's great, but like I wasn't in the seat six weeks and I, I you know, started 
getting restless. It's time to start looking for a truck. But with the market the way it is, I, I think I can sit tight and wait for things to collapse first. Yeah, you could be a little more patient. And then there's going to be all kinds of opportunities out there when this finally uh, reaches the bottom. And it's um, it's a little scary. I wasn't going to talk too much about the economy today. I'll probably talk about it on Thursday. Um, we are seeing some really scary numbers. We have now hit some numbers that are worse than during the lockdown. And the lockdown was some of the worst numbers we had because the economy was just about shut down. Our economy's running now and we're seeing worse numbers than when it was shut down. And they haven't stopped yet. This week was worse than last week. We haven't found the bottom yet. That's a little scary. Um, I posted something, you know, every downturn we've had tends to wash about 10 to 15% of the owner operators out. Most people, if you're doing just half the things right, you usually survive these things. I don't think that's the case this time. I think this is going to wash out some people that are doing a lot of things right. They just got caught with some bad timing, maybe. Let's, uh, let's go to Minnesota. Joe, welcome. Uh, two quick things. I just thought of one other one. You guys talk a lot about gearing and 13, 18 speed and going to 264s. And I know you said before, um, why would you go to an 18 speed? Well, I have, or we have three trucks, gliders. Two of them have 18s and one has a 13. And basically the 18 speeds, we only buy them for two years. First for starting out and reverse for backing up slower. That, Otherwise, the 13 does work. Th- that tends to be why we, a lot of people bought the 18, not because we need to be able to split all those gears. Nobody ever does, especially with kind of horsepower and torque we have these days. You know, 18, 13 and 18 speeds were designed because we didn't have enough horsepower and torque. You can make up for a lack of horsepower and torque with enough gearing, and that's what they were doing. We just don't need those. That's why these smart transmissions have kind of settled in around 12, uh, which is plenty. It could be done with less, but it's pretty efficient to do it that way. Um, So a lot of times we were just trying to get those low gears first and reverse. Why didn't they just make a 13 speed like that? That would be too easy. I, I guess so. So, and now they've solved that because the the 13 and 18 speeds, it's not an efficient architecture. We, there's a gazillion of them on the road, but it's not an efficient transmission. The new design, the new architecture of the 12 speeds is much better. Yeah. And some of the places I get into are kind of tight and different things. So I like it just for the slower two gears. Literally, I never ship well. Pretty much hey, never shift the lower side unless I'm playing around. Hey, Bruce, I know you made the comment that um, you need to study the architecture on these 12 speeds, and I think you're going to be pretty surprised. The way I would like to do it was the way I got to see it when you took me to um, Western Truck Parts, remember? And they had the transmission dyno when we were building the transmission for the signature hey. truck, and we got to watch it all working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I learned a lot from that. I'd love to be able to go back to them and have them show me a, a 13, a, you know, a traditional 13 speed compared to a new 12 speed smart transmission. Well, I don't have my contact there anymore. So. I know. All right. 
Joe, what else you got? The other quick thing that that guy that called earlier about his cruise not working properly. So on my truck, I had it where the speedometer was bouncing around. And that's what I did. Took speed sensor out and I could turn that phone ring. So I just took an air hammer, put it up on that phone ring, gave it a couple little taps. And I have not had an issue since. And I think you guys were right with the temperature being he starts in the morning. Something is expanding and tightening that tone ring up, I thought, anyway. It's That's what I thought, too. Poss- possible. Could be, yeah. Uh, oh, Leroy, I left you a message on your answering. If you could call me after the show. Oh, guy wants me to do a tune. I have a question for you. Okay. Yeah, I'll give you a call. That's all I got for today. All right. That's all we need. Thanks for the call. That's going to wrap it up for today. Um, thanks to the team from Pittsburgh Power doing all the heavy lifting for us. We'll do it again next week. Uh, tomorrow is a health free for all. I don't have any guests. Uh, I'm not sure of a theme yet. I'm going to go work on it now. Thursday, I've got a bunch of stuff lined up for Thursday. So I'll kind of give you some heads up now so you can plan for it. Thursday at the open of the show, I'm being joined by David Owen, the founder and CEO of Nastic the National Association of Small Trucking Companies. Great operation. I've talked about him for years. Him and I have played around with, you know, partnerships and doing some things together and just uh, both of us are pretty busy, so it never worked out. That was the two and a half call, hour call the other day. Uh, so it, we're, we're heading down that path. There's lots of things we could and should be doing together. Uh, so David will join us at the open on Thursday. We'll do an hour. And then I'm going to be joined by Jamie Hagan. We're going to do a new segment called, uh, I don't know what we're going to call it yet. It's about Twitter and all the trucking info that's going over on Twitter. There's some good stuff over there. Uh, And then Jamie will do an hour. Then it goes into rolling toe for the third hour. And then at noon, after rolling toe is over, we've got four straight hours going on on Thursday. At noon, after Rolling Toe, Jamie and I will get back together on a space in Twitter itself. Uh, And we'll do just kind of a free-for-all open conference call. So join us for those. We've been doing more of those, and um, that's going to become a regular. Oh, tomorrow I'm also doing a health space at noon as well. So that's the schedule right now on Twitter. We're doing a, a Twitter space, which is just like a big conference call. We can get 10 speakers in there all at the same time. We don't have any volume issues so far. The technology has been working really well. So it's a, another form of broadcasting that allows us to bring in more speakers and more of an open kind of dialogue instead of just Q&A. So we're going to be doing a health space on Twitter every Wednesday, a trucking space on Twitter every Thursday. Uh, and I know you guys are busy Pittsburgh power and you already give us a couple hours every day. But if there's ever a time any one of you want to jump into a space with us, that would be fun too. Yeah. Sounds like fun. Sure. All right. We'll, uh, we'll look at that. We're going to wrap this up and we will see you back here tomorrow. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.